Good morning, and welcome to this brand new episode of the Silmarillion Film Project. After a one-episode hiatus, I am your co-host Dave Kale back again. Um, fortunately, my son Wally is is uh, upright and feeling perfectly fine, so I should I should manage to stick around for most of this episode, hopefully. That's good. <laughs> uh, which and is that- exciting because. I was going to say, and Dave, and that never goes away. I just had to cancel a class earlier this week because my 15-year-old son was sick. Uh, so, you know, uh, get used to okay, this yes. phenomenon. <laughs> yes, I, I, I mean, I'm starting to realize that, 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 that this is going to be the state of my, oh, state of my life from oh, yeah. here on out. It's constant, like a constant state of siege. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yep. that's not going to change. <laughs> well, at least, at least they're pretty fun. Exactly. Yeah, no, this is, it's not that there aren't rewards, you know, absolutely. Sorry, but it's here I interrupted the well. intro, but yeah. It's, uh, yeah, nah, it's, nah, that's how our intros usually go. So. <laughs> anyway, so here we are. We've made it. We've successfully started on time, half an hour late, like usual. <laughs> um, and uh, we have an exciting episode. We have um, four uh, script outlines that we'll probably get about halfway through. And uh, we're also going to start teeing up casting and a few other things like music and costumes and stuff. And, of course, the elephant in the room is the latest rumors about the Adventures of Young Aragorn uh, series that Amazon Studios is uh, cooking up for us. So without further ado, let me introduce our, uh, our, uh, my co-hosts, as always, our Corey Olson, the Tolkien professor, and Trish Lambert, the Tolkien maven. And... As we've been doing the last few episodes, we're joined by our special guests, Nick and Marie, who uh, are heading up all of the screenwriting activities. They're the poor suffering individuals that we harangue about the script. <laughs> That's so, right. Oh, good Thank morning, you. all of you. <laughs> yeah, glad you guys could join us. Yeah, no, this is exciting. I am, I am really pumped to talk about, to go over the outlines uh, from uh, today's scripts. Uh, or, or yeah, the, the outlines of the scripts for today. Um, these episodes are really, you know, the heart of the whole show. I mean, we're going to be, you know, the whole season. We're looking at, you know, from the Doom of Mandos through the mortal wounding of Feanor uh, at the end of episode ten. Um, and uh, there's some, there's some. Obviously, this is, as I say, really, you know, in my eyes, the heart of the action of the entire season, uh, and some really, really great stuff in here. I will, I just one thing I want to say from the top, like I was actually misting up on a couple of occasions reading some of these outlines. I have to tell you, like, there's some really good stuff here, uh, uh, and I, I really, I'm a big fan. Um, are you uh, are, are you going to be in danger during the uh, course of our discussion? I don't, we'll see. We'll see. I, you know, I, I, Mission accomplished. <laughs> yeah, it was great. It was. I I absolutely loved it. I absolutely loved it. So, uh, great stuff. Looking forward to uh, to going through this and talking about the stuff. Um, we should, however, begin with uh, you know everyone is wanting to. Uh, talk about the new. We finally have news uh, about the Amazon series uh, and uh, some, uh, some some discussions about where they're going to begin, uh, which is right exactly where we've been predicting they're going to begin from the beginning. I've been saying how long ago did I say months ago? I said you know I predicted that the first episode would be Estelle discovers his true name and lineage, um, and that's still kind of. Uh, 
uh, exactly what it looks like they're going to be going towards. So um, I've been feeling a little smug about my prediction. And of course, uh, uh, Trish and Dave and I have been reminiscing to when we started kind of talking and joking about wouldn't it be great to have a, a TV series on the adventures of young Aragorn way back in, in Riddles in the Dark. I'm pretty sure it was Riddles in the Dark season three. I think that's when the... Cause it was. Yeah, I think it was because it was in the context of I think it was in the context of like, what is is Peter Jackson going to do something else next? And there were sort of the leaks, uh, discussions or allusions to the idea that he wanted to do some kind of bridge film between The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings. And everyone was like, what could that be? Um, And that I I think it was in that context. I mean. Dave and I, it seems like we talked about a bridge. People, somebody go back and listen to all seasons, okay, of Riddles in the Dark and tell us. Um, it seemed like it was early. You know, I thought it was season three. Then I, when, brought, when Dave brought up the fact that we started talking about bridge films, it seems like we were talking about bridge films pretty, pretty early in the, se- in the series. But anyway, Maybe, at yeah. some point in Riddles in the Dark, Trish, we became uh, enamored when, when, did the, the when did the bridge film thing come up? Cause I, I don't remember. I might be misremembering it, but I thought it, I thought that – discussion began sort of before the official we're making three movies decision it, it may well be Marielle is also remembering that it's that yeah sure. exactly it was a long time ago Marielle is and also thinking that we first talked about funny, it in season didn't one. We? Didn't we, yeah. we, weren't we pleased with our senses of humor when we brought that up? <laughs> oh, yeah. No, that was a running joke. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. No. It was, yeah. Because I remember when we started Film Film, I think some of us said, oh, and now we can do Adventures of Young Aragorn. Yay! Yeah, exactly. We're finally going to get around to it. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, no, I agree clearly. Um, clearly, they... Um, um, you know, they must have been listening, obviously. Uh, you know, my, and so. my pet theory is that somebody is definitely a listener and they're yeah. just not giving us any credit. They're just oh, I understand. Right. Yeah. Credit. They're like, why should we hire these people as consultants when we can just w- watch their show and, and get it all for free? Right. So it makes perfect That's sense. Right. Yeah. It makes perfect sense. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. Thorngill, the legendary journeys. That's it, Robert. That's just, that's exactly the plan. So. <laughs> Another reason not to do that, just saying. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, anyway, yeah, no, I, so I think it's, I, you know, to me, it's, it's entirely sensible. Uh, you know, you can, you can, the, the history pre Aragorn story, right? I mean, if you wanted to get back into the, you know, like Second Age, Rings of Power stuff, I mean, there's enough, uh, even, so, like, you know the first you know the thing that we have to reiterate there is no evidence that there's been any give or will be in the near future any give on the Silmarillion material you know the Silmarillion rights so you know one has to operate under the assumption that uh this new show is not you know there's been no discussion of new rights um that is, the TV rights were given, but not rights to new material necessarily. Um, certainly not to the Silmarillion. That's not been on the t- again. So far as I know, maybe in some back, you know, there's a there's a you know a, a, a nod and wink ag- agreement in a back room somewhere, um, but uh, but nothing that I know of. So we have to assume, for now at least, that the Amazon show is not going to be able to deal with any of the uh, the Silmarillion material. Now you could probably do if you wanted to include if they had 
had wanted to go back as far as, say, the forging of the Rings of Power, you know, and do the Aregian and Sauron uh, story. Um, that would have been a defensible kind of season one, I think. Um, and I think that there's enough uh, between the appendices and, you know, between what's talked about in The Lord of the Rings and the Council of Elrond and in Chapter 2 and, uh, uh, and then in w- what you get in the appendices. I think that there's enough um, for them to be able to kind of put that together uh, and, uh, and, and, and do it. But there's a big gap in between, you know, that, that fairly exciting sequence at the forging of the, the rings of power. Uh, and then later on. So to me, it is, uh, it always made most sense if they're w- wanting to do like a continuous story to start with the adventures of young Aragorn, because that gives you a lot of opportunity to tie together a whole bunch of things there. Um, to introduce the major players as far as the many of the people. Um, but even when you're not introducing people because it's too early, um, you know, some of the people in question won't even be born yet. Um, but nevertheless, it still gives you a good opportunity to introduce like Gondor and Rohan and, you know, Eregion and the story and, you know, the situation in the North and Bree and everything, you know, you, there's lots and lots of stuff uh, that it gives you in Gandalf, right? You know, the Gandalf meeting in the hunt for Gollum and, uh, you know, there's all kinds of things um, that um, that gets uh, that gets involved there. Now, Robert is talking about the uh, the history of Goadriel material, and it is interesting, Robert. I don't. I wonder, um, and I don't know this for sure. I mean, that as far as I know, still the uh, you know they're kind of keeping a lid on the exact terms of the rights agreement that they made. Um, you know, has permission to use any of the Unfinished Tales stuff been granted as part of the rights deal? Not that I know of. I don't think so. But um, all I know is that the Silmarillion hasn't been given. You know, might they have negotiated for some of the sort of comparatively minor stuff like, you know, Unfinished Tales? Maybe. I don't know. Um, I, I can't. I mean, like we know for a fact that, you know, that Peter Jackson was not supposed to use any of the unfinished tale stuff. I don't know for a fact. I, I suppose still, uh, and I would operate under the assumption that he can't use unfinished tales, but I don't know that for sure, like, because it's a new rights agreement, right? Um, we knew the terms of the old rights agreement, the movie rights agreement that Tolkien sold in his lifetime. We don't know that yet the terms uh, of the new TV rights agreement that Amazon negotiated. So um, it's conceivable. Um I, I don't know how likely it is, but it's but it's conceivable. Um, anyway, anyway, so so yeah, I don't know. I mean, wh- what do you guys think? Uh, so my 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 main question. Um, I, again, this is where I suspected they were going to begin all the way along. My real question is, where do you think the first season's going to end? Like, what's the first story that they're going to tell? Are they? I mean, they could go from episode one of of season one. At, you know, Estelle learns his true identity to season finale episode, um, you know, the battle at Pilargir and Thorongil walking away into the south. Um, Yeah, but if they've got five seasons locked in, that's a lot of ground that they cover in just one season. Yeah, exactly. And I would... I mean, I could could see them doing... Let's see, what are we doing? He discovers who he is in the first 
episode is what we're saying? Well, yeah, that, that's that's my guess. I mean, it could be younger. I mean, we could they could do just like we did in the frame, right? And open episode yeah. one with the death of Varathorn and you know the flight of Gilrine to to Rivendell. Um, but basically, I don't think there's going to be much difference if they do that. Because if they do that, no. I mean. What happens to that? Literally, nothing happens to Aragorn for his first twenty years, apart from the possibility of meeting Bilbo on the way through, right? <laughs> when he was when, an adolescent. Well, uh, so it's, they'll do a lot of fanfic. When does he serve uh, Theoden? Is it before Pelargir or after? Yeah, before. It's on his way down, okay. I think. Yeah, yeah. So there might be that. It seems like there's going to be a lot of fanfiction. I had to crack me up. Side thing. I think it was to an answer of one of your tweets. I can't remember. Somebody goes. As a as as a dialogue for Aragorn. Oh, thank God, my name's not really Estelle. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, that was, that was Joe Hoffman. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> or or maybe it was Tom Hillman. Actually, yeah, no, exactly. Oh, I think it's Tom. Yeah, I think yeah, it was, yeah, it was, was Tom. Yeah, yeah, that was funny. Yeah, but you're right. I mean, but I it seems to me like if they went all the way in Throngo, they're burning up some really, you know, uh, rich story material if they do that in the right. first season. Yeah, and I can see qu- the end of the fifth season being Polarkir, maybe. <laughs> Conceivably, right? The real question, I think, is how much do they want to... So, like, what's the focus, right? If this is really going right. to be an Adventures of Young Aragorn season, like, so this season is going to be, like, about Aragorn's development arc, and it's going to be focused on him, you know, then that's one thing. Uh, and then you could kind of get further in that. But if their plan instead is to use Aragorn as sort of the central figure in order to bring up and to bring out, you know, lots of different plots and stories from around Middle-earth in this time oh, as the shadow is growing and the war is coming, then there will be lots of other stories and other of which, you know, Aragorn will be a comparatively, uh, would be a, a sort of a comparatively incidental figure, right? Well, then um, I hate to go back to this, and I don't necessarily mean the adventures of young Hercules, but, you know, the Hercules series was kind of like that, where Hercules, like, wandered around, and then, you know, each each show, or maybe a couple shows, would be a local story of some sort, you know, of that right. place where he was. Right. I could I could kind of see a variation of that Right. The difference, though, I mean, the difference that I would see, and of course, this is when we were, that's exactly the kind of thing that we were originally talking about, like five years ago, when we first made the jokes about the adventures of the young Aragorn show, because that's what we were imagining, right? We were imagining... You know, Aragorn traveling about through Eriador and Middle-earth, not as a sort of epic storytelling story arc kind of show, but as just an ongoing episodic, um, you know, could carry on for 20 seasons kind of, you know, where he has one, you know, adventure after another and different encounters and things. Um, This, though, seems to be more in the epic storytelling mode, right? So that we're we're moving a larger plot towards a a very definite destination. Yeah, true. I think the last story of whatever the series is, this is impossible, and they're not going to do this, but I think it would be awesome. He goes into the he's 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 a ranger, you know, he's incognito. He goes into the Prancy Pony, orders a beer, goes and sits in a corner, lights his pipe. And four hobbits walk in the door. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> Goes in the corner and lights his pipe. Actually, don't even have the hobbits walk. Just have them sitting there in the corner. Just right. have them sitting there. Right. I'll wait. That, I'll yeah. wait. I'm good. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's neat. Um, I, you know, Dave, I really liked your idea um, that they should do the story of the Battle of Azanul Bazaar. Yes. I think that yes. that is an I don't, awesome. I don't, care, I don't even care how they get there. Or yeah. what kind of weird, 
uh, story gymnastics they have to do to force it. Oh, I totally I, agree. I just want yeah. it. I mean, of course, it's way out of chronology, right? Because, I mean, the Battle oh, of Aragorn, like, the Battle of Five Armies happens when Aragorn's 12. So we'd have to, like, totally, have to totally change well, the chronology. A dwarf could tell him the story, and we could do it all in flashback. But you're right. Having that captured on film, I think, is a must. We gotta do it. We gotta do it. It would be really cool. I mean... <sighs> Yeah, it would be hard. Like, what you'd have to be willing to do in order to do that is to play fast and loose with the 70 years, right? The 70 years, um, I'm thinking Bilbo's 70 years. Um, uh, Well, okay, no, when I say 70 years, I'm thinking about the time between when Bilbo goes on his journey and when Frodo leaves, like the 70 years between the end of the Hobbit and the beginning of the, and the, the beginning of the journey, Frodo's journey. Um, it's 60 years when, uh, the begin, when the Lord of the Rings begins at the, at the all expected party, it's been 60 years. So Dave, that's where you'd have to give something, right? Um, but that seems to me an eminently foreshortenable time period. Right. I mean, what suffers if Bilbo is not in the Shire for 60 entire years? Like, what if he's in the Shire for only 30 years uh, post journey, pre long expected party? Like that still seem that doesn't seem to me to be a significant change from a storytelling perspective. So, like for instance, when uh, Peter Jackson and company made the decision to cut out the seventeen year gap between the long expected party and Frodo's departure, right? There's seventeen years between chapter one and chapter two of the Fellowship of the the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, by cutting out that seventeen years. On the one hand, it's understandable that they don't want to say, like, 17 years later, you know, along the bottom of the screen in the film and everything. But it had a significant storytelling difference, which was pervasive throughout all three of the films. Namely, that Frodo was really young, right? Frodo didn't get a chance to mature. Like, those 17 years are important from Frodo being the, like, barely of age adult to now Frodo is the senior hobbit um, who is at the same age that Bilbo was when he went away on his journey um it making you know casting elijah wood making frodo into the youngest person on screen um was a big story change and that was a change that uh that had a lot to do with the fact that they decided to take that particular time gap and remove it right um but i'm thinking uh but Robert, we don't have to make Bilbo born at the same time. Bilbo can still be can still be fifty when he goes to air. But would just we? I mean, it would need it would mean shifting the dates. But those dates don't correlate and it with each other. Birthday at the uh, long expected party. Oh, you're right. We do have to fix fix that date, don't we? He has to be eleven to one. That's a good point. All all unimportant details that can be that yeah. can be glossed. That's fine. He'll be eighty when he goes on the journey. It's just that's fine. That, he can be eighty when he goes on the journey. That's fine. What difference does it make? <laughs> yeah. Seriously, he's middle aged at that point, right? I mean, he's still middle aged when he's uh, 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 you know when he's when he's seventy five uh, for a Hobbit. No problem. I'm fine with this. I'm totally fine with this. Uh, but anyway, my point is, if is the is 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 that worth it? Because we'd have to do that if we wanted to get in the Azanul Bazaar story uh, in this timeline. We would now, of course, 
in the from the film film perspective, we don't have to make such cruel decisions, right? Uh, because we have the whole scope of the whole time frame of Middle Earth open to us, so we can just do the Azanul Bazaar story in its normal spot, uh, and then do the Hobbit storyline comfortably afterwards, um, which will be fine. But um, uh, heck, we can just uh, yeah. they, they can they can just do it as a flashback. I'm fine with that. I don't care. Yeah, dude, all it's like a four episode flashback. <laughs> Why not? Why not? Um, Make a spin off miniseries. Actually, I mean, you know, as long as we're talking in the realm of what, you know, like, like fantasy, uh, that's what I like. Don't even don't even try to cram it into Young Aragorn. Just make a successful show that that spit, that um, generates enough momentum that they have uh uh, you know, studio support to make more stuff, and then do a miniseries flashback. That would be Darren. interesting to yeah. do to do different for if if they were to approach this the the show essentially as that like a series of tales in that way, right? That would yeah. be interesting. Uh, I was I was imagining a Lord of the Rings Middle Earth extended cinematic universe, right? Right, exactly. Um, it, it, that's that's that that would be interesting. Actually, that would be really interesting. Actually, that would actually that would something to rival the Marvel universe, huh? Yes, yes. I would actually. I would. I think you know your idea, Corey, of an anthology. Like if they did, if they did an anthology where each season was like yes. a separate story, that'd yes. be pretty cool. That would be really cool. I, I honestly, uh, I'm going to express a slightly contrarian opinion. I'm a little nervous that young Aragorn can't support a Game of Thrones style epic, mm-hmm. you know, because I know totally that's right. the stated goal. Yeah, I'm a little concerned. Yeah. Like, it's, given that's what they'd want to make, frankly, I would have preferred they set it in a different, like, like you know, um, uh, back during like the 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 kinstrife or something you know some earlier period in gondor history where there was a lot of political stuff going on well, i i don't um, i don't think they need i mean they can have an epic storytelling without politics i mean all apologies to george r r martin you can do epic storytelling without uh <laughs> being obsessed with politics uh i mean i agree certainly you know the time of the time of the kinslaying would be one of the most george r r martin esque moments you know to tell um Mm-hmm. But uh, but no, I mean, I think that they can do uh, again to me, the question, especially in season one of the show is is just because you're right. It's not ju- like if, if this is just the coming of age of young Aragorn, that's not in itself going to be uh, going to be enough to carry you through. But Aragorn goes everywhere. Right. Aragorn's involved. You yeah. Know, once Aragorn true. hits the road. Right. There's no story that happens in Middle Earth that he can't be a part of, right? Hey, he's that's everywhere. true. Um, that's true. And if they go, if they go the route of making a, a a really well done epic, but swashbuckling type show that has Aragorn on the road having lots of awesome adventures, I hey, if he goes out east and we get to see the east of Middle Earth, 
I'm all in. Yeah, I mean, I think they should do that. I mean, we know he does, right? Uh, let's let's see, like the 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 season uh, of Aragorn's adventures where the stars are strange, right? You want to talk about blank slate? That's literally yeah. all that we know, that he's been to the Southern Hemisphere, right? Okay, so Aragorn yeah. in the Southern Hemisphere, what happens there? Like, what if what if they go what if they go that route and they have, they're like this entire next season Aragorn will be in will be in the South or something? Yeah, they could do, easily do that. That'd be awesome. They, they could do a whole season of that stuff after Pilar Gear. And here's the really cool thing, right? Think of the potential payoff of that. Not only, do, do, you know, can you get some really cool stuff, you know, which you have absolute license to make up whatever you want, almost, um, because there's no kind of textual precedent for it, other, other than that it happened, so, you know, but we don't know anything. But think of the payoff when it comes to the War of the Ring, right? When we get these Southron armies coming up with, like, dudes that we would know and recognize that Aragorn would wreck. So when Aragorn leads the Army of the Dead down to Pilargir, it would be, like, old antagonists that we that he interacted with and that we met during the, the Southron season, you know? I mean, that would be so cool. No more, no more faceless corsairs and and senseless Southrons, right? It would just be like everybody, like the dudes yes. riding the Muma kill. Everybody, we'd know them, right? We'd know the yeah, cultures, we'd true. know the peoples, we'd know characters. There would be, you know, again, him like clashing a, with old antagonists, with an old friend. Yes, there'd be there'd be meeting old friends on the battlefield on the opposite side. Absolutely, absolutely, um, really, really cool stuff. Um, so yeah, no, I mean that could be that could be really. Uh, not only could it be really great in itself, but it could have some really awesome payoff uh, later on down the road. Yep, which I is like it. This whole thing's making me sad now because I remember <laughs> this is how excited we were about the <laughs> Hobbit films. Yes, it's just. just <laughs> remember, Dave. Just remember. That is what the Silmarillion the film the, the Silmarillion film project is the flame that has leapt up from the ashes of the Hobbit films, right? Uh, yeah. Our disappointment in the actual execution of the Hobbit films is what inspired the entire idea of the Silmarillion film project. So, uh, so fear so it doesn't matter. Remember, it doesn't matter uh, if they do a terrible job and they don't fulfill any of the promise of these things that we're foreseeing. That's okay because we will still have the opportunity to do it properly ourselves. <laughs> uh, so it'll all be good. And a hundred years from now, when the rights do get released, someone will comb through all of the That's right. our notes. That's right. <laughs> the day that yes, when the Silmarillion get though yeah, I wonder. I wonder if there have been any actual gambling odds set. Probably not, right? Vegas is probably not particularly interested in this question. Uh, but I would be interested to see the betting line uh, on when the Silmarillion film rights will be released, TV or film rights. My prediction is 30 years after the... Right now, my prediction is 30 years after the unfortunate... Demise of uh, of Christmas. <laughs> that's what's that's what's so morose about this. What we're really betting on is when will Christopher Tolkien Christ, when die? When will Christopher die? Yeah, well, I, I'm I'm not. No, yeah, I mean, I'm not going. 
you have to but, accept that as the start date, right? I mean, the, 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 I mean, the the betting line is not how many years from now. The betting line is how right. many years, like how long after the death I mean, of Christopher Tolkien. It's not like he's forty years and, old, and we're you know, <laughs> right, we're getting right. you know what I mean. But I, I think 30 is way too long. I think the generations after Christopher are not anywhere near as, as invested as he is. I think it's like five years. Okay. And there are many who think what? that, like, the contract for the film rights will be, like, in the pile of papers right under the death certificate, too. So, you know, <laughs> I, I, it may already be drawn up and in a safe deposit box someplace. <laughs> I, I, there are people speculating about that. How old is Christopher Tolkien now? 90, 90, like 92, 93. 91. Yeah, he's in his 90s, early 90s. Yeah. I remember. He's, he's thinking he's got a ring. He's got a ring, yeah. <laughs> 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 a ring. He has the ring. That's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, well, it's it's especially. I mean, it's like a really good irony, right? But it's it's really it's really almost almost funny because I mean it's it's funny in a good way, right? Looking back on Christopher's youth, right, and how worried. To, I mean, he was the sickly boy. He was the one who was bedridden so much and had you know chronic health problems throughout his youth, which is how he got involved working with uh, with Tolkien's writing in the first place. Um, so yeah, that, uh, just the very idea that Tolkien's youngest, uh, you know, invalid child is now in his early nineties. Like it's, it's just, it's yeah, like, sure. it's like one of those things that, you know, lots of people, uh, you know, sort of ask if I could like, uh, if I could like go back and talk to Tolkien, what, what would I ask him? Well, like that's probably one of the number one things that would be on my list of like, things that I could, like, if I could go back and talk to Tolkien, what, what things would I want to tell him, right? One of the things I would want to tell him is, dude, Christopher's going to live into his 90s, right? Like, that's, that, that was, that, that's a huge deal. That was, that was a major upset, uh, certainly. Uh, was a lot of anxiety in Tolkien's, uh, in Tolkien's middle years over Christopher's health. Uh, and then would he survive the war and everything else? So, yeah, I mean, it would, uh, it would have been awesome to, uh, well, give that oh my gosh, it's probably away. just as well. He probably would have weighed Christopher down with just an enormous number of instructions, you know? <laughs> right. Oh, Let's well, if you're going to live into your 90s, yeah. then. <laughs> here's what I need. Here's what I need you to do, you know? Right. On and on and on. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, in retrospect, it's not a surprise. He had to he, – he, he's had an important destiny all along. He has. He has. <laughs> Which was to defend Middle Earth from uh, from corporate America. Yeah, so. and, exactly. And it's so you know it is so uh, it's so easy for you know I know I know that there there over the years have been many people who have been you know kind of harsh on Christopher and and just viewed him as like an obstructionist and everything else, um, but. Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, what that man has accomplished, you know, I mean, the legacy that Christopher Tolkien will someday leave behind, you know, of all of his editorial work, um, you know, from Unfinished, well, from the Silmarillion, obviously, uh, through Unfinished Tales and on forward through the whole history of Middle-earth and what he's been doing in late years with all the unpublished stuff and the uh, the repackaging of the great tales as he's been doing, which has been really great, you know, with Baron and Luthien and Fall of Gondolin and the Children of Hurin. Uh, I mean, it's just... It's 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 awesome. I mean, the the to to see the way in which Christopher has succeeded in you know sort of the charge that was left to him as literary executor. I mean, Christopher Tolkien has to be one of the like greatest literary executors of all time, right? Clearly, like he has to make the Hall of Fame of literary executor people who have uh, helped to both protect and you know promote. Uh, the legacy of, you know, the, I mean, that's just, it's amazing. It's amazing. It is amazing. I mean, I couldn't believe it when he announced Baron Luthien. I'm like, seriously? Yeah. Dude, you're like, you know, you're like way past retirement age. Way, 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 way past retirement. It was, it's really impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, okay. However, we should talk about our script outlines here. There will be more time to work through the issues of what we would choose to do in season one and all that kind of uh, season one of the Amazon show and all that kind of thing. But we should return to season three of, uh, uh, of our actual show of Silmarillion film project here. Um, Good plan. Yeah. Forget this this reality crap. You're a real buzzkill, Corey. I know. I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Stop talking about a real show. We're talking about our fake show. <laughs> exactly. Can we please get back to fiction now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, quick announcements just to remind everybody the big thing, MythMoot 5. So MythMoot registration is going to be going on through the rest of this month. It's coming up soon now. We're almost, uh, we're almost, we'll be, uh, we're just a few days shy. I don't think I've sure. registered yet. You should totally do that. Yeah, absolutely. I just got mine two days ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this is going to be, uh, um, this is going to be great. I'm I'm uh, I'm so excited about Mythmoot. And by the way, we have uh, uh, there's that we we have some uh, uh, some recent news actually, recent development. Um, uh, Tom Shippey is going to give a talk. He can't come over, um, but we've been talking to him. A lot of people really wanted to have Tom Shippey this year, and I well, I tried to talk him into coming over, but he just couldn't couldn't make the flight over. Um, but uh, but he's gonna he's gonna he's gonna Skype in. We're gonna he, he's he's gonna do a talk from England uh, at Mythmoot. So uh, that's gonna be that's gonna be it's a Tom Shippey talk. It's gonna be awesome. So. Um, and, uh, oh, Tim, the schedule for, is out. If you go to the events page, um, the, 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 the MythMoo page, go to signumuniversity.org, uh, down to the events. Uh, there, there are links to the schedule on the, on the events page there. Uh, so you can see all the stuff that's coming up there. Anyway, going to be awesome. June 21st to 24th. Uh, in Leesburg, Virginia. Um, and, uh, yeah, definitely register now. Um, there, the, uh, <laughs> okay, so I'm supposed to say that the registration deadline is May 31st. The truth is that May 31st is when I start like arm wrestling with the venue to keep registration open. But uh, but anyway, the point is time is running out. Uh, that is the primary message, uh, uh, definitely. So um, 
Uh, so that's going to be cool. Uh, don't forget Baymoot. We've been getting a bunch of registrations for Baymoot. Really excited to go out to Northern California. Uh, so we're going to be in Oakland on August 18th uh, for our Northern California moot. So I hope that uh, a bunch of you will be able to join us there again. You can uh, see the details on our events page. Uh, we're also the, uh, the the Holly Moot uh, yes. um, uh, uh, organizers are having a little powwow this weekend. Yes, yeah. There's been uh, there's been a, a lot of big talk there in Southern California. It's been really great to see uh, that stuff coming together. The organizers are doing a great job. So th- they did connect with you, Dave. Oh, yes. Yeah, I was non-responsive for a little while, but I managed to connect. (laughs) Good, good. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, So that's good. Zach, yes, I saw your registration. So glad you're able to come. That's great. Um, Yeah, yeah, good. Um, Awesome. So, yeah, no, the the, the Northern California moot in August, Southern California moot in planning where uh, I'm, uh, I'm, you know, this this has been a desire of ours for a long time. So I'm really excited to see those things come together. And if I could make it out there, that's uh, that's uh, little Ness's uh, due date. So, Uh yeah, (laughs) there you go. Oh, how exciting (laughs) for August. I hope you have your priorities straight. So is that the August 18th date? Uh, uh, that's the due date? Yes. <laughs> hey, awesome. Well, I'd, I'll be – my birthday is August 16th, so I'll be cheering. You know, let's see if we can – if it it'd be uh, – it would be, I would be honored to share a birthday uh, uh, with your with your child. So let's see if we can get the timing. That would right. be exciting. Right. Two days yeah. Well, mine's the 12th, so if it's even a little earlier, I'll steal that. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> And so got knock on wood, God forbid, if it's late, I'm August 27th. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, dear God. I, yeah, I wouldn't wish that on her, but, uh, <laughs> I mean, that is, like, almost I'll, two weeks late. But. I'll, I'll let her know, and I'm sure she'll keep all of these things in mind. That's good. That's good. <laughs> I'm sure as, it's, as, it's very as, important. As she should, yeah, exactly, right. Exactly. Cool. So, uh, and then last in-house announcement. So, as always, we're uh, looking forward to doing our casting episode uh, and our big democratic casting process. So, for those of you who are new to film film, um, we we like to do our, we we cast our new characters. We have already, you know, of course, there are many of our characters from this season are already cast. Uh, We did that last season, but many of our new characters, uh, we still need to cast. Uh, So, the way that this works is we, we this is a big crowdsourcing thing. So um, you guys can go to the discussion forums uh, in season three. There's the the, the casting discussion thread. Uh, the list of characters for which we need nominations are all are all there, right? Trish, are they there now? Yeah, I just need to make sure I actually posted it. Oh, I haven't posted it, but it will be. <laughs> all right, it, it will, will be there. Any moment, it will be there. Um, any and minute the, now. Uh, Marie, do you want to talk about the, the sort of the process and the timing there? I want to make sure I don't mess it up when I explain it. Okay, so obviously we need nominations first, so we need to um, get as many characters um, and actors as we can between now and when we finish up all the rest of the postseason stuff, and we'll announce when we're going to close the nominations and open voting. So the voting will be for those two weeks before the casting session, essentially. And right. the, t- the deadline for voting will also be announced at that time so that we can compile the results before <laughs> the casting session. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, great. So yeah, so right now we're opening nominations. Um, and uh, Marie, talk a little bit about what a nomination consists of. So if somebody wants to nominate uh, an actor or actress, what do they do? Okay, so the main requirement is that only actors who are currently alive are um, eligible to be nominated, right. and they must have an IMDb uh, webpage. So it can't just be random people who are not professional actors. Right. Uh, My uncle so would like be that, great as the, right. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Yeah, just yeah. so that's the restriction. <laughs> so as long as, as long as they are alive and have an IMDb page, then they're eligible and have not already been cast in the project, I suppose yes. is the third uh, thing. What you need to do is to post their name, their age, their height, a photo of them up to three photos, but no more than that. And um, a link to their IMDb page as well as a brief description of why you think this actor would be appropriate for that role. Uh, so some, some character traits that match would be mm-hmm. a good idea to convince other people of your choice. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it is, it is not just putting in a nomination, but really kind of making a pitch for that person, right? Cause you want people to vote for. Yes. That. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, and we would like at least three nominations for every uh, character who needs to be cast. Mm-hmm. Hey, Marie, if you get a chance, would you actually enter a thread uh, with all that information in it? And I'll make sure, sure. it sticks to the top so people will see that. Sure, yeah. I'll, I'll just steal it from the season two casting instructions. Okay. And I, I made a note to say also do your best to think ahead as far as who will we will need to cast in the future. So, mm. you know, just in case it's like, don't go all in this season and then be all bummed because the perfect right. role for guy that's already been cast. Oh, and yeah. also... Check back in previous seasons to see who's already been cast. Right. Yes. Yes. We definitely so. will want uh, to to review those. In fact, it might be ideal to have a, a sort of a summary list that we could post somewhere so that people can see that. There, know. There is a summary list in the uh, casting forum and in right. the general section, but but I could repost it in the yeah, nominations cool. thread if that helps people. Yeah. yeah. yeah or the be. other thing you could just do is just link it, you know, do a hyperlink to that thread. Yeah. Right, right. Something to let people know how to check if someone has already been nominated or exactly. already been cast. Sorry. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, cool. No, that's great. And yeah, it's true. There, there have been. There are still. Aren't there are still? Aren't there still like a handful of actors that we've been waiting on? Right, because we were talking about them before, but we were like, no, this person would be perfect for. Yeah, like, of course we don't remember. But, yeah, I'm trying you know. to remember. There, there were a handful of actors that were requested to save for later, but some of those characters are still not up for casting yet, so right. we'll, we'll, we'll still hang on to them for later. Didn't we, didn't we decide on a really cool Holleth character, for instance? Or actress, yeah, there actress, were several suggestions. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I seem to remember that there was a, last year. There's an actress on Vikings who had a lot of martial arts experience that we thought would be appropriate for Holleth, probably. Right, right, yeah. Yeah. Or at least more appropriate for Halleth than to waste on Calabrian, which is who I think <laughs> yes, Ryan, that's exactly right. right. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Essentially, any female actress who was in any way action oriented was suggested as a good pick for Halleth. So right, right. Well, and as I recall, we we cast like half the cast of Vikings last year. Uh, that seemed to come up mm-hmm. a lot. So yeah. Okay. Cool. All right. So yeah, excellent. So we'll be uh, so phase one of the casting process has now officially begun as nominations are open for season three characters uh, and the list of uh, the list of new characters are there. So awesome. Okay. Did we ever cast we because we did cast Beleg and Mablong last year, didn't we? Yes. Yes, they have already been cast. That's what I thought. Okay. Cool. I'm just trying. I'm just. I'm just myself trying to cast back and remember which. 
which uh, which which people of the major characters from this season we already had we already had cast. Okay, cool. Yeah, so we have about a month for nominations, roughly. Great, uh, but we'll we'll announce the date when they close before they close. <laughs> right, right, excellent. Okay, very good. So, hey, I have an idea. Let's move on and talk about uh, episode seven. So, episode seven is the um, the Doom of Mandos episode. And uh, uh, Marie, uh, Marie and Nick, what did you guys want to emphasize about this one? Like particular questions or thoughts you guys had about this? There are totally no Thor Ragnarok references in this episode <laughs> of any kind. Of any kind, yeah. Any 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 similarity to Thor Ragnarok is purely uh, in the mind. Or is it purely yeah. coincidental? Yes. Yeah. For the record, I had not yet seen Thor Ragnarok <laughs> when we went over this, the script outline for this. So I personally did not put that in there. Um, <laughs> but having seen it since then, looking back, I'm like, yeah, I could see how people would consider this completely ripped off of the plot line uh, of Thor Essentially, like, when we were working out like the climax of the, uh, the Kirdan plot line for that episode, I said, hey, here's how I think this should go down. And went into this long explanation. Everybody was like, yeah, that sounds awesome. And then three days later, I uh, I sat down and watched Thor Ragnarok for like the third time that my <laughs> wife and I had seen. And I went, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> A little bit too much like fighting Fenrir on the Bifrost, no. was it? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a little bit like that. But it's not, yeah. it's not 100% that. Anyway. Um, but one of the... A few of the things that we wanted to do is we wanted to really give Benarfin some good screen time yes. in this episode. Yes. Uh, because we realized that we really hadn't done that at any time previously. And since this was the last time we were really going to see him, um, we really had to kind of see this episode through his eyes, which was difficult considering that he wasn't a major player during the beginning of the episode necessarily. Yeah. I really liked that was my favorite element of episode seven. I loved how that worked out actually um, having it, it's in some ways it's a really gutsy decision to have the doom of Mandos episode not be Feanor centric, right? Which is the, uh, the sort of obvious temptation. Um, but to have Feanor be not exactly a background character, but in a sense, he works really well as a background character here because he's completely focused, right? He's completely like there's no there's no change. There's no development in Feanor at this point. Right, he like he knows what he wants. He's doing what he's doing. Um, the real drama is in Fingolfin and Finarfin, right? And what are they going to do? And are they going to that Feanor is going to keep going? Is a is is a given, right? Um, and even in a sense, how he's going to respond to Mandos and the Doom of Mandos is a given, right? Um, even I mean, it's gutsy. Like the, you know, the, you might have the question of like, is he going to have the nerve to like, you know talk back to Mandos, you know, when uh, Mandos gives the doom, but he does, right? You know, but what he says is not a shock. What he says follows from what he's been, he's, ma- he's keeping, he's maintaining the course. And so showing that, but showing that from the side, essentially, right? Showing that from someone else's point of view and to have it be the point of view of the person who really is coming to his final crisis in this episode in Finarfin, I thought that that was just brilliant. I thought that was was beautiful. And it totally, um, it totally 
solved my, or allayed my concern that Finarfin's departure, which I think if you guys hadn't done this, Finarfin's departure might have merely looked timid, right? Like the Doom of Mandos comes out and he's like, oh, now I'm scared. I'm running back home because I'm because I'm timid. Right. And that's obviously not the message that we wanted to that we wanted to send there. So I I, I loved how Finarfin carried the episode. I thought that was really uh, that was really smart and was executed really well. Pretty much from from here on, um, Feanor is pretty much a force of nature, and we're kind of seeing what he's doing rather than yes, exactly from the outside, rather than trying to get into his head and trying to like we're no longer trying to sell the audience that what he's doing is totally understandable anymore. Like that, we're not in that place at this point. Yeah, no, and uh, that's really good because that's that's a hard sell, right? I mean, to try to get. If he, if Feanor remained simply the protagonist throughout this section, it would, I think it would be, that would be alienating, right? I mean, who wants to get, who wants to spend that much time in Feanor's head, right? Um, And, I mean, you can do that, right? I mean, you can create this situation where the narrator the, the not the narrator, where the audience is getting more and more uncomfortable with the protagonist, right? Um, you know, until finally they sort of... But uh, but I really like the... As you say, he's a force of nature, and uh, you can... I think in some ways we can be even more effective in conveying his effect on people by seeing him from the outside, rather than inviting the viewer to sort of, like, identify with Feanor, right? Because, I don't know. I mean, you can kind of identify with Feanor in some ways, but it's not really the point. Um, and again, I, I, I think Finarfin works super, super well uh, for that. Um, I loved his debates with Fingolfin oh. as well, and Fingolfin's, like, especially the question of... Um, it's better to, you know, his argument that it's better to break an oath than keep, like there's, there are circumstances in which it's better to break an oath than to keep it. Um, and the way that, because that's the, the very gentle way in which that obviously connects back to Feanor's situation, right? Um, without directly commenting on it or directly critiquing him for it. Um, I thought that that was, that worked really, really well. Right. Well, I mean, it's one thing to, to keep an oath because you know, even though it costs you personally, right. like that's one thing. Right. But when it starts costing everybody else, like now you're holding on to this because of pride, right? In in, in reality, right? You know, um, there was. We also moved the sword breaking moment um, to here. It seemed a little to fit the tone yes. of this episode a little bit better uh, than yeah. it did. Episode uh, three, three. Yeah, no, three. I, I like that. I like that. Yeah, it's, and especially since we've decided to 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 pull back on the Noldor in episode three thing, anyway, right? Um, yeah, no, I I, I, I liked it. Uh, the way that that was made into a, a sort of a, a really kind of central public statement. There, um, it fits better as part of that discussion. The the discussion that 
the well, I was about to say three-way discussion between Fey and Arfin, Arfin and 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 Fingolfin, um, but it's not really a three-way discussion because Feanor is not discussing with anybody, right? It's really between just between Fingolfin and Finarfin with Feanor's position as a kind of accepted data point, right? In that right. in that discussion, uh, but yeah, no, I I I like that. I like that thing now. Uh, one thing that actually really struck me as interesting there, and hang on, I'm going to pull up the pull up the thing here. Let's see. So, wh- uh, where's this? Where's the sword breaking? Do you remember? It's in scene three. Scene three. Okay. Um, yeah. So, okay. So, your description of this was very detailed. You guys were clearly had a had, had a clear visual picture of this in your head. Uh, Figolf and Wedge. Yeah, we quite. For, for quite a while, because the the issue is, it's actually not that easy to break a sword. Yes, yes. Like, or something, you know, right? Uh, unless you made it really badly to begin with, which we don't want to be, right? So, yeah. So okay. So him, I, I like the idea of him wedging it in and breaking it. Um, you know, in a way that's gonna that's gonna that's gonna work. Though the the detail that really jumped out at me was um, the shard that falls into the sea. Right, so you you know you you had this very clear picture of the piece of sword sort of spinning off and splashing into the sea. Uh, what were you guys thinking there? What what what, uh, what were you going for with that particular? Because that seems like that 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 kind of begs symbolic interpretation, right? Um, so this was neither of this idea did not originate with either of us. Um, okay. This idea actually came from Bailevern. Necessarily speak to uh, with a one hundred percent accuracy as to what the reasoning was, um, but for me, what it seems like is that the sword can never be whole again in and of itself. It can okay. never be the same sword again. Right. So the idea that that his sword is not only broken, part of it is lost. Is is the the main point, right? So it's it's yeah, not a connection with the time the, with the whole loss of innocence thing that yeah, goes with this yeah. part of the story. Yeah. So he will reforge this later, but it won't be exactly the same, and that's okay. It'll be a different story. Yeah. It's not the same sword. Yeah. It has components the same, but it's not the same. Yes. Yes. Yep. Um, and this is the yes, yes. Yeah. No, that's great. That's great. Um, We need to... Where else will we have seen Fingolfin's sword on screen before? Uh, the Kinsling. At the Kinsling. <laughs> Whom does he kill with it? Do we ever get in, um, to see him kill someone? Named, no, no named characters no are named killed characters. by it. Um, it's it's the Tulare Archers. The Tulare Archers. Yeah. So, but we should show it... So when... We we sh- I'm just I, the, the visual image of his sword here is really striking and and especially I, I and I and I love and I love since since the the original suggestion of the breaking of the sword I've loved this as the way that Ringill becomes the the sort of symbol of Fingolfin's career right um, so I so I'm thinking we have to make sure that we feature that prominently in that scene when Feanor is sailing underneath and Fingolfin's looking down from below. Fingolfin needs to be holding the sword with blood on it, right? So we need to see Fingolfin holding this bloody, you know, sword stained with the blood yes. of his kin. Um, 
and it, even I think having having a really close vi- visual pair, like, he, he can even be looking at it, right? So here's Fingolfin holding up his sword and looking at the blood on his sword, and then he looks down, and Fingol and Feanor is looking up at him, right? Um, so that we we have a clear, you know, he can hold up his sword in a in a sort of a visually parallel way before he breaks it, right? So that we, I really want to cement that connection because I think it's such an important symbol. Um, also, <laughs> so if the right, the scene right after that, you, you see, um, one of the reasons why we were kind of obstructing the idea of maybe we switch Mablung and Beleg, uh, mm-hmm. at, um, at, at the, uh, whatchamacallit, at the battle, the, yeah. the first battle, Arab, yeah. uh, was because we had already put Beleg on the other side of the continent, um, <laughs> Which wasn't any like nobody else made us do that. Obviously, we had done that in you know independently, uh, but that may have have colored our like. Um, actually, can we not maybe do that? Um, but um, one of the things that we wanted to um, to illustrate through through this is how like completely underprepared for actual combat. Yes, the Falathrim are. Yes, case. Yes. Like the green elves, but in a different way. But but what's really cool to me is the sort of common thread there, right? Um, neither one of them, neither the green elves nor the Falathrim, um, are f- – they have not given any thought to combat, right? They, they are unprepared for war and for the same reason, right? Both of them – are like positively focused on the on the like the development and preservation of something right the 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 forests in the case of the green elves the ships in the case of the philothrim right um and so their sort of positive constructive focus on the thing that they love has been what and have been what they've always focused on so like no neither one of them have ever made any military uh uh Preparations and I. One of my favorite moments in this is where Beleg assumes that they're defending the town, right? Like we must defend the town at all costs. The Philothrim are like we don't care. I was saying the the cool thing there is how both the Green Elves and the Philothrim are focused on a positive thing, right? They're focus, focused on preserving that which they love. The, the Green Elves, the, tr- the the forests, the Philothrim, their ships, and so neither of them have made warlike preparations, and their priorities are just different from other people. Like Beleg wants, I love how Beleg wants to defend the town at all costs, assuming that that's what they're going to be interested in, and how they don't care about the town. Like as long as they can get their people out and save their ships, they've they've like basically won. The houses are just where they live, right? And they can build those any they can rebuild those anywhere. Um, and I think that that's a, it, it's really cool to sort of show that different focus, both of them. But of course it does also put both of them at a great disadvantage when trying to match up militarily against the forces of, of the enemy. I mean, it's clear that things need to change if they want to survive in the new world with, you know, Melkor in, in middle earth now. Um, but, uh, but it's really, but I, I, I think it's a really neat kind of glimpse into elf culture and the way in which elf culture is, is different. Like you don't, they don't assume that like survival and beating off enemies is one of the obvious prerequisites of life. Right. Yeah. And, um, speaking of the ships, um, I do enjoy kind of the, the captain Galdor, the adventures of captain Galdor, um, <laughs> that came out of this. 
Now, the, the vampire attack on them kind of seems like a random action sequence just kind of dropped in there. Uh, the reason for it is because it's really not that interesting to just show them continuing to sail more fastly, you know, <laughs> to get to get to um, Eglares before the uh, before they get destroyed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so we needed to we needed to threaten these guys to make it seem as though they may or may not actually get there. Right. Right. Um, yeah, just to emphasize that there's more than the mere covering of distance that needs to be overcome in order for them to come to the rescue of Eglarest. Right, right. Yeah. It's kind of like the, it's kind of like the, the pearls issue. Like if you keep giving the dwarves pearls, you're not giving them anything new, and so on TV it looks like you're not actually giving them anything. Right. You know, it's the same, same kind of issue. Right. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And I think it's only going to look like a superfluous action sequence if the action portion of it is unnecessarily prolonged, right? Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, for one, personally, am very pro-action sequence, uh, and I often get really offended when people... Uh, talk about action sequences as like mere fluff. It's like stuff is a com- like character development is accomplished during action sequences if they're done right. You know, like good action sequences move both plot and character development forward. Um, uh, uh, and I have little patience with people who just like don't like fighting and so just tune it out. I mean, to me, it's almost. I, I feel. I feel. I feel almost exactly as frustrated and in actually a very similar way to people who like want to fast forward through fight scenes as I do people who skip the poems in the Lord of the Rings. Honestly, it's like, it's yeah. stuff. It's important stuff. But anyway, um, yeah, so no, that's good. But okay. So I have a question though. Uh, and this was, I, this was a thing that I realized I had, uh, reading through, the outline, both the vampire stuff and the werewolf stuff, I was realizing, okay, I don't think I have a clear visual image of what we want to do with these creatures. Werewolves, what do they look like? What's the difference? How can you tell the difference between, a, between one of the, like, the, the Gaurahoth, between one of the, were, you know, Sauron's werewolves and, like, the, because we have three or two. How many, how many, uh, how many ranks of wolf creature do we have? Do we have like big, fierce, regular wolf plus warg plus werewolf? That was, that was certainly my impression that Uh there's, that there's wolves that we're familiar with that we see there's wargs, which are larger and more aggressive, more intelligent. Um, the wargs are the ones that we meet in the Hobbit. Right. Right. Um, and, then werewolves are class above that because they have been imbued with um, with higher spirits. Um, right. My interpretation has always been that those are my spirits. I know that not everybody interprets it that way, but well, they seem they're spirits of some kind anyway. Uh, right. What so do you call them? The, what, the one obvious difference is that regular wolves don't like talk and plan and attack towns right. and things like that. Yeah. So exactly. beyond that. Uh, wargs obviously do communicate and have intelligence and can be part of an army. Right. And then werewolves disappear when you shoot their bodies. Right. So there's something supernatural about a werewolf that is not true about the others. 
but not necessarily a human transforming into a wolf type of werewolf, more right. of a wolf plus spirit. And that's the right. Right. Combination part of it. So by the way, so this means we're implying that it was werewolves that attacked the company in Eregia. Yes. Yeah. Well, right. and Gandalf uses the word Garhoth against the, them. Yes, so yes, yeah, he, he at least identifies them as werewolves in that scene. Right. Right. Yeah. Phil makes an interesting parallel. So wargs are like horns, essentially, the sort of in between. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of. I would say that that's, that's, that's pretty close. Yeah. Um, but as far as what they actually look like, we can talk about that in the art session to figure out exactly how wolf-like yeah. versus how uh, monster-like people are picturing them. Right. Yeah. Also, size is, is an obvious, uh, mm-hmm. obviously big difference. Wolves are big. Wolves are obviously pretty big in in some uh, varieties. Uh, wargs yes. are large enough for a person, you know, a person of larger than hobbit size to ride on. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Um, Karkaroth uh, is huge. <laughs> Karkaroth is yeah. Karkaroth yeah. needs to be like yeah, like the size of a the the size of a short school bus, right? Uh, but yeah, no, I mean it's <laughs> it's yeah, it, it, yeah, and we do always, of course, have to keep that in mind, right? We always have to keep Karkaroth in mind as our standard. Like, however big we make wolves, we have to remember that Karkaroth has to be bigger and not look ridiculous. Um, uh, so yeah, that's definitely our. Karkaroth, we we have a hard cap on wolf size, right, in Karkaroth. Yes. Um, okay, so, um, all right, and so vampires too. Are we, are we imagining any, what we would call regular, so like we get the vampire bats in The Hobbit again, right? Which I'm thinking are to bats as wargs are to wolves, right? Mm. Right. But yeah. not Thuringwethel uh, werewolf variety. So Thuringwethel is to the vampire bats of the Hobbit as the werewolves are to the wargs of the Hobbit, right? Sure. Right. Yeah. That's what we're thinking. Okay. Actually, mm-hmm. um, I kind of thought of the the like the larger vampires being kind of harpyish. Yeah. Yeah. In a way. Um, maybe not quite as anthropomorphic, but uh, something in that yeah. line. Um, yeah, exactly. Now, uh, no, Phil, you're absolutely right. Of course, when Tolkien says vampires, he means bats. I mean, vampire bats. That's how they. That's how they said it. Um, but Thorin Gwethil. Okay, first of all, Thorin Gwethil is awesome. <laughs> Thorin Gwethil is one of the great undeveloped characters of the Silmarillion, right? Uh, I mean, I love the concept of Thorin Gwethil, and yes, like, Thorin Gwethil was a bat at the end of the day. Like, it seems pretty clear that Thorin Gwethil was a bat. But she was also a messenger, right? And if we wanted to depict, uh, you know, we made the choice to depict... Um, Thurin Gwethel as fundamentally human in shape or shape changer kind of thing that she transforms into bat shape um, uh, to to move. And I think having this kind of having her, especially since we have Sauron and his team of like the chief monsters of the monster groups, right? Tavildo, Dragluin, uh, Thurin Gwethel. 
it makes sense uh, to have uh, have her, you know, like she's like, you know, the queen of the vampire bats, basically. Um, yeah, exactly, Phil. Another dark equivalent to Huan, in a sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, but do we want her to be unique? Like, or is she... Are there others? Because if there are others, we've got to get rid of them somewhere. Because we... I mean, I guess we could imagine that they have survived uh, somewhere in Middle-earth. But... Um, I don't think there are that many of them to start with. Yeah. You know, like of, of these shifter vampires. It's possible that there are, like like you said, there are different gradations, you know, of vampire bats. And at the very top, you have these shifters. And there probably aren't that many of those. Right. Right. I mean, I, I think it would be perfectly acceptable to have, just as we have Bulldog, right, who is like the the prototype of the orcs to have these, the, the, the central named characters be Maiar spirits who are essentially like the prototype of these. And so that all of them, and, and they could all be unique, you know, so that all of the other werewolves are, you know, they're copies of Draugluin, right? They're lesser copies of Draugluin, but Draugluin is unique. Um, that, that, the, uh, there, there can be other vampire bats who are like you know other vampires who are like you know vampire like bats who are significant and intelligent um, uh, and and large and maybe can uh, can change shape possibly I don't know like if we want to have a werewolf class you know werewolf you know vampire class vampire then like the the big vampire bats and then normal bats beneath them if we wanted to do that same thing um, but again having those those captains be totally unique seems to me a perfectly defensible practice. True. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree, Marielle. They would be terrifying but couldn't but couldn't possibly stand up to eagles, the vampires. Yeah. Yes. Agreed. Yeah. And we, and that's kind of the point that we, we make in that scene too, is that the, the bats are scary. Like the vampires that attack them are scary. And they're able to do damage, but they wouldn't stand up to like a concerted, um, a cons- to concerted resistance. Right. Maybe we could even. Uh, I would also think that the vampires would be vulnerable. Um, th- that is, they can get shot down. Right. And I think they should be shot down early. And Marielle, you're exactly voicing the kind of uh, um, uneasiness that I have been having in thinking about this. Melkor can't have an air force like he does not have a functioning air force. And it's kind of a big deal that he doesn't. Um, So if I I would want to either make them extremely few or, you know, to have Thur and Gwethel be almost unique at the beginning, or we need to pointedly kill them off. Um, well, they're, they're not physically strong is one right. of the things that is, is shown. Um, anytime that we've put them into like a combat situation, it's shown that they're not physically that tough. Um, the elves can handle them no problem once they overcome the surprise. Um, it's, it's tough to shoot a flying creature in the dark. I mean, obviously Legolas gets, gets away with it. Yeah. Um, well, exactly. Many of the elves have pretty good night vision too. Yeah. 
Yep. Yes, dude, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And bats also don't fly very high, right? I mean, as a rule. I checked. Do they? They, they? I checked. They've been found pretty high. Um, Drat. It's, it, it, yeah, I, I, thought the same, I was thinking the same thing uh, when we were talking about this episode, and I went and looked it up. They can get pretty high. They they don't... It doesn't happen often, though. Right. Like, birds fly pretty high as a matter of course. Bats somehow manage to find themselves thousands of feet in the air randomly. <laughs> okay. Just caught in a thermal and can't get out? Okay. I, right. I have no idea. I, like, I, all I know is they've been found at pretty shocking heights. Right. Right. Um, okay. Okay. But yeah, I would think that though that like really large like warg scale bats, right, would be something that could be hunted very actively by the elves, you know, during this next period so that they could be quite rare. So that even so that Thuring Gwethil is we could even say that she's the last of her kind by the time we get to the Baron and Luthien sequence. Yeah. Um, so that all Melkor is left with after that are basically just sort of lesser bats who would be less useful. Um, That's acceptable. Yeah. Okay. And we're getting to have eagles, so even if there are vampire me- messengers around, it doesn't mean he can send them wherever he wants to. Right. The eagles would be a pretty strong deterrent against <laughs> getting a message through that area or doing any spying. Right. Right. I'm, I'm sort of a... is not going to spot Gondolin. Yeah, no, clearly not. Clearly not. Well, I, I'm uh, I'm imagining this um, sort of comical sequence, you know, where Morgoth is standing up on that plateau above uh, uh, Thangarodrum. What? And then there's this like bat messenger who's flying towards him and he's expecting some really important news. And then, you know, Thorondor just plummets out of the, you know, out of the upper atmosphere and takes out the bat when it's like half a mile yeah. away. And, and, uh, right. you know, well, Morgoth is like, actually, yeah. I think, I don't <laughs> think we called it out in the outline, but when we were discussing it, um, I made a point that these bats would probably fly pretty low to avoid to detection. Avoid yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, specifically to, to avoid detection, in even in this case, um, because right. if they're flying low, it's going to be almost impossible for anybody to detect them before they get there. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah, but that's just it. I mean, it would be a it would be a hard life for uh, large vampire bats in a vigilant Beleriand, right? With like, if they fly too high, they're in eagle territory. If they fly too low, they can get shot down. Um, uh, so, well, I think that once the siege is, is established, that's... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, okay, all right, because anyway, yeah, I was just thinking... Th- and Tevildo. So the cats, are these just, like, you know, just giant cats? I mean, giant cats are scary enough, goodness knows, right? I mean, like, are they just, um, like, leopard think, size? Bigger than leopard size? Are they... I think we had talked about either black panthers or cave lions as mm-hmm. suggestions. So, mm-hmm. particularly large, big cats. Yeah, large, hey, big cats. Panthers, not very big. 
in comparison. Right. But yeah, cable lines are huge. Okay. All right, but we would want to make the, and and so here too are we are we looking at a you know sort of striation here of 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 the cat population it would just we have Tavildo the unique you know evil god of cats here and then his cadre of warg like giant cats um I would say Tavildo is probably larger than the largest living cat on planet Earth, right. whereas the, the the others are no bigger than tiger size. Okay, and point. they would be intelligent like wargs, yeah. essentially. So yeah. they would be like so. There is no werewolf class essentially in the cat world, which makes sense because Tolkien's a dog person. So you know, it's all. It's all good. Yeah, yeah. The, the deal with the cats is they're, they're very stealthy and independent, so we don't have, like, an army of cats for kind of obvious reasons. You can't coordinate that. Yeah. Um, so it's it, like it, herding cats. <laughs> um, so, it, yeah, so, like, what they're doing doesn't require that they be very large mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because if they're just sneaking around and hiding, like, they need to be big enough. They're not tiny. That right. would be amusing and cute rather than scary but uh so they're like they're, they're big enough to be scary but they don't need to be the biggest cat ever seen to yeah. get the point across like tell me that tevildo should be decently sized but yes. the rest just average yeah yeah, yeah leopard, i agree it's jaguar not about, it's not about it's not about lion with. yeah yeah okay yeah. good Yes. And yes, Marielle, of course, we will be doing a session where we'll be talking about some of the stuff in more detail and we'll look at pictures and stuff. I just wanted it was it was when I was trying to picture these battles, I was having a hard time with figuring out, like, are any of them going to be human? Like, are the werewolves going to be human shaped at all? What's, I was just I was I hope not. having a hard time picturing it. So. Yeah, I think we, we eliminated that pretty early. Okay. Um, as to the battle itself, um we we once again had a little bit of a hard time um, because you couldn't really you wouldn't really have a situation where you had an organized defense before the wolves got in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, but at the same time, you had to like you had to start a panic. Pretty quickly, in order for you know, just to, I, I right. forget the entire reasons behind that, but so one of the things we did was have the wolves send individuals in ahead who immediately start a panic on purpose. I like the howling thing, right? That suddenly howls break out, not just in the distance, but all around them inside the town already uh, is really because yeah, it's not a walled town as you say, so like. There's nothing yeah. to there's nothing to keep them out. Um, one thing, of course, that that I sort of remembered uh, another really cool kind of payoff moment that we get is, of course, remember Beleg slaying all the wolves one by one and silently guarding the camp where Turin is being held. Right. Um, so we're going to get this really awesome Beleg shooting down wolves uh, scene later on. Um, so I would, I would love to kind of 
sort of begin to anticipate that here, essentially, you know, having having Beleg um, shooting down wolves in the dark. But of course, he's not going to be able to protect the whole city. So, but yeah, right. it's just like I was just making the Beleg and wolves connection is like, OK, yeah, we're, we're, we're going to get a scene on that later. So that's going to be fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, of course, the big climax of the uh, of the episode is the only thing that's actually in the book. Which is the, um, which is the, the Doom of Mandos itself, right? Um, right. Which we had, we had to. Once again, we had a situation where, if we weren't careful, we had the big event happen, and then we spend a lot of time talking about it. Um, so what we had to kind of do here was make that scene after Mandos uh, departs, or whoever the messenger is departs more dynamic uh, mm-hmm. to make that the climax itself is the, the discussion. You know, so by making the that discussion more dynamic where there are different people having different conversations um, off to the side of, of each other, you know, that's what, what increases the tension there. Right, right. Yeah, no, I liked it. I liked how this really came to... I thought that you guys set up the discussions after the Doom of Mandos really well with the discussions, you know, the debates that had been happening earlier on and the uh, the tensions before. Um, one of the other... Uh, and this will be my last point about Episode 7. Um, I would love to hear you talk a little bit about your choice of Finrod as the... the Because Finrod is kind of, in a sense... I mean, Finarfin, as you said, is sort of the center... Uh, of the episode, but Finrod is his sort of primary focus, right? Finrod is the one he's trying to uh, talk. He's the representative of those who kind of sort of agree with Finarfin, but choose to stay, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, that's that's you pretty much answered that. Okay. So there that's, is that's, because that's the, he's, yeah, yeah, he's yeah. going to be leading them on from here, and so. He has to have a reason why he why he does that. That doesn't seem out of character for him. Once we get to Balerion mm-hmm. and see him, you know, once we once we see him over in Balerion, you kind of start to ask, why on earth did he come on this trip? Yeah, you know, it, it doesn't seem like his thing. So we wanted to kind of get into that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I did have one question for you. I know you're, in general, not a huge fan of flashbacks uh, mm-hmm. for several reasons, but would it be positive or negative to show Finrod's parting with Amarie in flashback in this episode to see what he's leaving behind in Valinor or not? Well, it is hard that we... Did we see her at all? Briefly, but we only saw Finrod briefly in season two. Right, he was a very minor character. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm thinking though, episode one and two when they left, did we see her? Mm-hmm. No, not particularly. Okay. Maybe in the background of a scene, but we didn't call out that that parting, and well, we certainly it, didn't show any dialogue. It is tricky because, of course, Finrod's choice to go on and leave his beloved behind is kind of a big deal, right? Um, mm-hmm. Especially thinking, of course, about Finrod's friendship with Turgon later on, and both of them have lost 
you know, their loved ones in very different circumstances, right? But both of them are alone, you know, living the sort of widower bachelor life in uh, Middle Earth um, because they lost their loved ones. Uh, like the journey cost them their loved ones in one way or another, right? Um, mm-hmm. So you guys do a great job with Elenway, future episode, but. Um, and there are several references to Finrod leaving his beloved behind. Yes. But it certainly would make that more powerful if we could get that on screen. Um, I would think... I mean, I almost want to say, especially if we want to make Finrod... um, Because I was getting the impression that Finrod is essentially serving as a kind of a representative character here, right? That he is sort of voicing the perspective of a lot of those who are choosing to go on despite not being in sympathy with Feanor. Um, And that, I think, is such an important thing to accomplish to make the audience really understand the the mindset of like the sons of Finarfin, especially, right? Uh, The children of Finarfin Mm -hmm. who are choosing to go on. And of course, you guys do a great job of giving Galadriel a strong voice, but she's kind of different because we're sort of showing, like her flaws are more showing. Finrod has sort of less, slightly less flawed reasons than Galadriel to go, if you know, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a little less proud than she is, less impetuous, less proud. Um, so if Finrod is going to be the representative, the fact that he's leaving his beloved behind makes him potentially an even more powerful representative, right? Because then he is, he's not only the spokesperson for those who choose to go on, he is also the embodiment of, like, what they're leaving behind. Or rather, his beloved then becomes the sort of symbol of what they're turning their backs on, right? All of Mm -hmm. them have, in a sense, left behind their love in Valinor, Right, um, have turned aside from that which they built and that which they loved and that which they've known all of their lives and that which they once hoped and dreamed would be their future. Right, so in that way, Finrod's relationship maps really well onto the Noldor as a whole, really, um, and so therefore, for that reason, it would seem a shame to risk diluting the effect of. And especially since, as I recall, he's the only one that we get that explicitly said about, right? That he left his loved one behind. Not because she died on the way, but because she just didn't come and he went anyway. Uh, Fingolfin is in a similar situation in that Anare has chosen to stay behind. But uh, that was more kinslaying related in our version of this in that she was best friends with Yarwin and yeah. Right. Um, yeah, though in the published Silmarillion, uh, Finrod is the only one that's... Allu- that's yeah, this is the only fact, story that makes it into the published Silmarillion. The, the other yeah. non-existent wives are mentioned later as, oh yeah, they stayed in Valinor. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> um, yes, right, exactly. And that's why they're not oh. mentioned, right? Exactly. It's like retcon, basically. Um, yeah. There was to be a conversation. I'm, I'm just looking quickly at the outline and seeing where that could fit. If there was to be a flashback to um, his, uh, 
to his lost love, that would be like immediately leading into the discussion he has with Galadriel. Either that or in scene five. Either um, one. If you go, you talk about the scene where, where um, what's his name, where Finarfin talks about yeah. her to him? Yeah. I feel like mm-hmm. if you did it there, it's, it's a little on the nose. Um, where are we talking? Where are we talking? What scene? Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think you so, said, you're saying, right, Nick, scene eight. Scene eight. Yeah. Finrod and, and Goadriel. Right. Yeah. Right. So if you have that, um, if you have that flashback there and Galadriel kind of breaks in on it, it makes it look like he's, it, so he's, he's considering what his father just had said in a previous conversation. Right. Um, as opposed to it, um, basically, if he immediately goes into a uh, a flashback, it, it kind of looks like that one line from Finarfin kind of like sparked almost like a PTSD flashback for him, <laughs> um, which I don't think is... Okay, I have an idea about about how a flashback okay. could be done. So, I was reflecting earlier today that one of the things uh, on the subject of ways in which elves are different from men, right, and sort Mm -hmm. of assumptions that we can't make that normally you wouldn't think twice about, right, when making the story, but because we're trying to show the difference of elves, we can't assume... And I was realizing that something that we haven't really spent any time with uh, talking about is the sleep question. Right. Right. That elf, elves not not sleeping. And there have been several times, you guys will remember times, when I have tripped up and been like, okay, so that night they do this, right? Uh, and even when I'm not forgetting that there's no sun and moon yet, um, still I my automatic you know, my default is to still think of things in terms of a day-night cycle, even if the atmospheric light is not different, but to be thinking of it in terms of a, of a waking sleeping cycle, right? Which the elves aren't going to have in the same way that humans have. Um, now, you know, we don't, it's not like we need to spend obviously exposition time in talking about this, but I'm wondering if we could, so, that whole walking in the dreaming world that they do, you know, when elves like walking in elvish dreams that they, that it, that refreshes them like sleep, but isn't exactly sleep that Legolas is described Mm -hmm. as doing in the Lord of the Rings. What if Turgon is doing that, right? If in his dream, you know, if he is walking in elvish dreams and of course, what's he going to be doing walking in elvish dreams? He's going to be, you know, walking and like revisiting the moment of departure from his beloved, you know, from Amarie back in, back in Valinor. Um, so he could be, so Goadjo could, it could be like waking him up essentially. Right. So he's having this sort of waking dream thing. Um, I don't know how to talk about it or how to introduce it, right? Um, without, because 
it's a kind of thing that's going to make sense to people who know Tolkien really well. Like they'll they'll know what we're trying to do if we depict that. But to people who don't, it's just going to look weird. It's going to, they're going to think he's on drugs or something. You know. Yeah, I mean, you can give Galadriel a line like that would have been in a human situation. Oh, did I wake you? Right. But instead, she can say like, Oh, were you wandering in memories? Or you know, right. Whatever were it you is, dreaming. We want to say for as simple as that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So like, we can convey to the audience what's going on. I think through dialogue there. Yeah. Um, it will seem to a lot of people that he's just daydreaming, right? And in the matter, but that's the thing. It's like he kind of is, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, like it's it is daydreaming. It's just different. You know, it's 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 not like human daydreaming, but it's yeah. I mean, I don't know that we need to spend a lot of of waste of time. Whereas elvish daydreaming is actually restful, right? is like replenishing in some sense. Um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I was just thinking like that, that certainly that would be better, I think, than doing a, like a kind of like, I don't know, certainly better than a mid conversation flashback or something like that. Okay. Um, but anyway, it's, so I, I just happen to be thinking about the whole walking in dreams and memories thing, uh, reflection that we hadn't done anything like that. So, you know, so we can do it here. We can do it here. There we go. And, but I do definitely think, and it's, so especially in context, it happens in Valinor, right? It's, we get we get a, we, we get some Valmar shots. Um, we definitely want that the the placing of that, whether we put it here in scene eight uh, or elsewhere. I think the point of it again has to be we we want to be showing this is a reminder. Um, this is. Remind, it's not just a reminder. It's like synecdoche, right? Of of a, it's like the the lesser standing for the whole of what the elves are leaving behind, right? This is the this is the mm-hmm. the elves that are choosing to go on, counting the cost, not just the cost of what they will have to endure when they go on, but the cost of what they're losing, of what they're leaving behind. That it's a real sacrifice. Um. Yeah, yeah. Brianna does point out that there, you know, there's a sort of established film language for visually showing daydreaming, you know, that that's a, that's a, you know, sort of a standard thing. Uh, yeah, exactly. Just do the, just do the, the, the wobbly screen. Exactly. It'll be all good. Um, but no, I agree. So I, 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 th- I think that that could work well. And, and I agree, Marie, just a, a line or so from Goadriel can help to contextualize that this is a normal thing. And she could even mention like disturbing his rest. Right. Um, yeah, we make it obvious that he wasn't sleeping, but she sees him and is like, "Oh, were you resting? I'm sorry. Were you dreamwalking or whatever?" Um, dreamwalking was uh, Hakan's suggestion uh, for the word mm. that uh, that she could use. Um, but um, anyway, yeah. So showing the, co- but we wouldn't want to make it too long, right? We don't need a whole conversation with her, like a whole. Just yeah. they're they're final conversation, their final goodbye to each other. Their final goodbye, yeah. yeah. To show that she has refused to go with him and he was hurt that they have to part yeah. over this. That yeah. he had been hoping that she would come along. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And his realization that he can't he cannot both go and have what he's leaving behind. You know, so. Yeah. 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 She's, yeah, she's not coming with not both go and stay. Right, you cannot both go and stay. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, is there anything else in episode seven? Okay. Nope. 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 Oh, okay. All right. 
but it's a corollary to the Finrod question. Um, or Adreth. Or, now, I know, like, we already have lots of characters. I totally get that. Um, and this is, if the answer to this question is just, like, there's plenty of time in future seasons to establish that, that's fine. But, of course, uh, thinking about, especially the way that you were setting up Finrod, like, Finrod to be Finarfin to the rest of the Noldor after Finarfin departs, right? Um, and I'm like, my, my first thought was, but... But Oradreth is really the one who's like Finarfin's mini-me, right? Not Finrod, exactly. Um, but maybe we just don't bother introducing him here, and we we can just show that later on he's the one who would do a better job than Finrod of actually being like Finarfin. As a well, question, are you considering Oradreth as Finarfin's youngest son, <laughs> or are you considering him as Angrod's son? Yes. Because that... I, was, I was trying to avert this. Mm-hmm. No, no, it's a great question. I mean, it's like the great Gilgalad question to come, right? Um, uh, yes, yes, <laughs> but not for today. <laughs> Which we are not talking about today. specifically been avoiding dealing with Oradreth until this situation was dealt with. Yeah. For this reason. Um, I mean, as a general rule, I, I would have to say, unless we have good, and, you know, there are many reasons that can be considered good reasons. Unless we have good reasons, I would want to stick, uh, I would want to stick to the published text. Mm-hmm. Just that, I mean... Because that's what people are going to be... If if, if we make Oradreth somebody else's kid, we're going to have to do a lot of... Exp- it's going to confuse even Silmarillion readers, right? Um, and uh, if even fans of the Silmarillion can't have a hard time following our family trees, we're in trouble, right? Right. Uh, but, but anyway, so we can think about that. Um, to me, the big, obviously, the big question, really the only question with Oradreth, right? I mean, Oradreth is only relevant in Nargothrond, right? With the mm-hmm. abdication of Finrod and then later on with Turin. So um, that's literally the only time in the published stories that Oradreth matters at all is his relationship with Nargothrond. And so having him be Finrod's kid brother makes sense in the in the purely Nargothrond context, Um but that's not to say that that can't be made to work. So I guess I would say if we have – if we, if what we have to gain by uh, reverting to Oradreth's other parentage outweighs the cost of the potential bewilderment and confusion that we would cause by having him not be what he is in the published text, then I'm fine with doing that so long as we can make the Nargothron thing work really well. But – so I would say that why don't we kick the can on Oradrith until season four? Yeah. Okay. At the very least, he's he's currently here in this scene as a young adult elf. Either he is the youngest of the sons of Finarfin, or Angrod's already married and has a nearly adult child, and that's also puts him in the group. So Oradrith's there. He, he would have the same role either way. Um, but we can decide later yeah. as to um, how he fits in the family tree. Yeah. 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 Agreed. No, I mean, I agree. It's not a bad reason <laughs> not to make him a focal point of discussion here, you know, uh, uh, in this, in this uh, episode. So, um, 
Yeah. Our, our main issue is that we had only really introduced Galadriel in season two. Her brothers were very, very minor background characters. So in season three, we're pretty much introducing Finrod. Right. We're introducing yeah. Agnar and Angrad. So we didn't quite get to Oradra just yeah. because he's younger. Yeah. And that's fine. Um, I mean, we do, we, we do already have plenty of characters. So, um, and saving some to introduce later on when, cause we're going to start losing some, right? Uh, so, <laughs> you know, like, uh, holding some in reserve is not a bad thing really. Um, but, uh, okay. All right. That's good. That's good. Um, and yes, and I acknowledge several of you are talking about, you know, the issues with, or the, you know, the issues with, uh, or and, and, you know, mistakes were made and all that. Kind of, like, I, absolutely. I, I acknowledge all this. Again, I'm just talking about the fact is the Silmarillion, the published Silmarillion is still kind of our text, right? And it's not, I mean, and you guys know me, I'm not suggesting blind adherence to it. I'm just saying we need a reason, right? We need a, and, and like whether or not it was a mistake or not, it's canon now, you know, I mean, and, and if we don't have Oradreth be Finrod's kid brother, even the Tolkien fans who are reading along, even, you know, even 90% of the Tolkien fans reading along or wa- watching along are going to be surprised and confused. So, um, uh, it's fine. I got that's, I, I'm not at all resistant to it. Just want to, uh, ask about that. So, okay. All right. So good. I'm good with leaving our address. So let's go on. Let's talk about episode eight. The burning of the ships. All right. So the burning of the ships, um, the development of the Emrod story uh, was really interesting here. Um, and on the whole, I really liked how the Emrod Emros thing came out, especially the actual um, immolation <laughs> of Emrod, <laughs> I think, uh, worked, um, worked, worked pretty well. So, um, yeah. Um, I had logistical concerns about that um, because basically we had to get this guy in a situation where he burns to death on the ship and isn't is somehow unable to jump off. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, and I think I brought the, that up in the session is, you know, if the elves on the shore can see him, he can get off before he dies. Yes. Um, yes. No, I the, the solution of having him just sort of somehow trapped below decks, um, and they don't realize he needs rescuing right until they hear the screams. At which point, it's, and that we see nothing. You know, we we just hear the you know we and the uh, the uh, other sons of fan or just hear the screams from the shore. Um, I, I mean, I think that that I think that that works. Um, getting him trapped below decks. I mean, that could be tricky, but I think, I think that could be managed. Um, yeah, we, we, we did discuss that at length, trying to figure out logistically, logistically how it happens, um, without making it seem too much like a Rube Goldberg machine. Yeah. Um, yeah, 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 it, that'd be the concern. But it, right. It, so, I mean, there, there are things that can be done. There's plenty of, of ways that a ship can be damaged in such a way that 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 can happen. Um, there were questions raised about the scene between him and Am, 
Emras. Between Emra, uh, yeah, Emrod and Emras, where where, uh, where the ship goes under. Yeah. And, okay. Uh, yeah, I had questions about that too. Um, I thought that might be yeah. <laughs> yeah. The loss of the Palantir, which we, which is, I'm pretty sure in an earlier episode that he that he finds it. Uh, we just haven't discussed it on on air at all. That he has a Palantir, a clandestine Palantir, which enables him to. FaceTime mom is adorable. Well, like I know well, they're not, I, they're not FaceTiming. Face it's not two way. He's just looking. He's yeah. just looking back at. Uh, he's just looking back at, at 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 mom. Like that's adorable. To make sure she's okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, that's cute. I like that. Um, and that the 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 you know the that the Palantir is lost is great. Obviously, <laughs> that needs to happen. <laughs> I was expecting it to get lost in the burning of the ships. Uh, frankly. Um, uh, I think it would be so. There are two 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 main things, two main objections I had to the sinking of the ship thing. First, are we trying to? First of all, is there any other loss of life? Was he sailing the ship on? There's no him? loss of life. There's no there, loss of life. There were other ships. There are other people there. Nobody dies. Nobody dies. Okay. Um, so it was it was more of a derelict ship situation than a sinking ship situation. Right. Right. Um, so, three. three. Three objections that I have to the sinking of the ship thing. Thing number one. I don't think, I don't think we can show a swan ship sinking. Um, yeah. I mean, like, if the boats of Lothlorien won't sink pretty much no matter what you do, I can't... Like, these are the greatest ships of all time. I don't think that we can show one of the greatest ships of all time just foundering. I mean, I get that the Fanorians are clueless, and that Amrod in particular might be a bit of a duffer, but, like, if he can just, through personal incompetence, uh, sink the... You know, like, take the ship down, um, it's... I, I think it undermines the ships too much. So that right. was there is an issue. Concern. Yeah. We do agree that it, that the ship doesn't sink. Um, I would remind you that Unin does sink some of the ships. Well, yeah, they can get they wrecked. Yeah, no, they're, they're wreckable, but that's right. not the same thing as sinkable, right? right? You know, just like right. well, we're, we're yeah. not we're not saying that the ship sinks. Okay, okay. It what was more like it's the. It? Well, you, if you snap the mast off, you can't sail it anymore. Right. So then it's just but floating out of sea. But, but even that, like, right? I know it can't break. It's not going to break. Like it would. It would. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I hear you. Yeah. The, 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 we we have we have that issue of yeah. How so, do you create a problem without undermining the reputation of the ship? Yeah, that's issue number one. Issue number two is, of course, if Emrod is so utterly hopeless as a sailor. Uh, that he manages to founder one of the great ships uh, here, and then he's talking about, I want to steal one of the ships and go home. How do we make that not sound like suicide? <laughs> you know, like, like, just, like this kid, like, do not let this kid near one of the boats. I mean, like, it was, I, I fear that it's, um, I I fear that it's, it's going to, un- the notion that he's going to return and go home, like I would want that to be a viable option like that. I would yeah. want that to be a, a could have been, should have been kind of thing. That, that's a fair objection that I did not consider at the time. Um, here, here's the situation. Okay. Amros 
gets Amrod gets on the ship to go to go across. He doesn't sneak off before they leave. He sneaks off after. Right. So the question is, what incites this? Like, what changed in between the time that he left Valinor and the time that they arrive on the shores of Middle-earth? Now, um, one of the things we did want to illustrate that the, the Noldor were not good at this activity that they're doing and I've got news for you. I don't know if I don't know if you've ever tried to handle a sailing boat. Even. Oh, it uh, is. It's, it's not that I can't imagine foundering a ship through incompetence. Right. I totally no, can no, imagine I, that. I, I, I have nearly <laughs> done it myself, and I grew up on an island. Yeah. So yeah, it's super easy to do. Um, like even with like good instruction. Right. No, I get that. And to me, it, it's just the whole I'll magic boat thing. That I, that I still I yeah, no, I, I get it. Yeah, um, the, another issue is that this is an ocean crossing, um, which is generally supposed to be a pretty big deal, especially yeah. if you've never done an ocean crossing before. Right. So the Feodorians taking the fleet from Aqualande across the ocean, that's a first. Like, right. that's, you know, circumnavigating the globe for the first time kind right. of a, right. accomplishment. And they're not sailors. So how do non-sailors accomplish that feat without any damage, loss, danger, right. getting going in circles? Like, I mean, right. how, answer, how, how did that even happen? In a fleet of magic boats is the answer to the question. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially. Right. Well, I mean, you know, they may not, the boats may not necessarily be idiot-proof also. No. Um, the, the, no. The, yeah. No. Nah, no. Yeah. The, the, I mean, remember, again, I, I come back to the Lothlorien boats, right? Which are described right, as yeah. wayward. Like, they are subject to incompetence. Like, if you don't keep your mind about you, you'll lose, you know, so they can run away with you. You can fail to steer them. You know, they, but no amount of incompetence is going to sink. Like, you're going to be fine in one of the boats of Lothlorien. And I would think that, you know, if the river boats of Lothlorien work like that, then... Um, you know, the greatest ships of all time would probably be in the same in the same kind of position, unless wrecked by right. doing it. <laughs> right. Again, like a, yeah. and, and, and yeah. Hakan brought up a lot of the same issues that you're bringing up, which is one of the reasons why I, I, I called the scene out in particular. Yeah. Um, because I wanted to kind of give give this yeah. a chance to be discussed. Yeah. Um, the other issue was that if we were going to do the whole Palantir thing. We needed to lose it in a way that doesn't look dumb. Right. Um, if he just dropped it, like, is he really that clumsy? <laughs> yeah. No, um, just dropping it is like a... That somebody took it from him and threw it, which leads me to wonder, why on earth is he... Like, he, he would obviously keep this a secret. Why on earth would he be doing it out in the open where somebody could do that? Yeah. No. Um, and no one would ever do that. So, I mean, th that's my third objection. So, I said I had three. Right. The third mm. is about the Palantir. Um, mm. I, I like the idea. I mean, again, I find the idea that Emrod has a Palantir that he uses to check up on mom, just like the most precious thing ever. Like that's adorable. And I kind of love it as a as a really cool way of showing. And again, thinking of the 
you know, in, in a kind of, I mean, in, in a very different, but in a sort of a parallel way as with Finrod, right? Um, the whole, like, the cost of leaving home and the cost of what they've left behind showing that, you know, it's a really neat way of showing that Amrod's heart is still back in Valinor, right? Um, so I like that. I, I really like that. Uh, but, 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 but here's my problem. My problem is Mm-hmm. The Palantir has to be if he's going to have a Palantir that's got to be a big deal capital B capital D. Like remember we were having no we had a no Palantir rule. Yes, right. right. Uh and for good right. reasons. But remember uh, Fanor made these things. Fanor is not just going to if somebody has brought a Palantir along it's got to be Fanor. Right? He made oh, them. The idea, his. the idea was that the only surviving Palantir Yeah would be the ones that have been given to the Teleri, right? So it's not that Amrod brought one along, it's that he found it on the ship after they stole it. One of the Teleri had put it there. Ooh. So we do need to go back and specifically call that out earlier than this probably. Um, I, I thought we had, but I, I may have I I may have we may have forgotten to do that. Um yeah. well, okay. the, the it should have been it should have been called out um probably last episode. Mm-hmm. Was, in episode seven, yeah, yeah, which there is a conversation between Amrod and Amras about their mother in that episode, right? So, okay, it, so I'm all right, but I'm having a problem with this. Okay, Fanor wouldn't do this. Fanor would not give all of the Palantiri to the Teleri. He might give no, them Palantiri. Oh no, he right. kept he kept a bunch in Formanos, but then Melkor destroyed them all. Okay, but. How is there a ship? How is there a Palantir, one of his Palantiri, on the yeah. ships that his fleet has been sailing and he has not taken custody of it? That would be nice. Am- Amrod found it. Amrod and found it and immediately. Yes. Yes. This is a Bilbo and the Arkenstone situation. Okay. Well, as long as that's explicitly true. Because I'm thinking, like, okay. I, get, like to, I just, I can't reconcile the idea of, like, Fanor would care yeah. a lot if one of his Palantiri yes. were around. And. Absolutely. Amrod hanging on to it to check up on mom would not be like he would claim that for himself and he would want to use it. So, okay. which, okay, which so is the reason why somebody's not going to grab it from Amrod and throw it in the water because that's really dumb. Yeah, no, no, oh my goodness. Like, this is anything that Feanor made himself is a huge deal to Feanor, right? And to his, okay. so yeah, no, agreed. So, the Palantir has to be. Okay, so my problems with the Palantir were chiefly like that it has to be viewed as a really big deal. It has to mm-hmm. be, which means its finding has to be really significant. I'm totally cool with an Arkenstone situation. If he finds it, if Amrod gets on a ship back in like episode two, two. right? Right. You know, and like finds and pockets a, pal- a Palantir, um, you know, maybe we see him, I don't know when this would happen. This would be kind of a distraction in the midst of the battle in episode two but <laughs> but basically what i'm imagining here is emrod like in the first 15 minutes on board the ship finding this thing looking back at the coast of valinor disappearing behind them and putting it in his innermost pocket saying now i'm a now i'm a burglar indeed right uh it's that's fine <laughs> And then having, and then having, uh, but then the, like the the subject of the conversation with Amros has to be Amros being like, "What? How did you not give that thing to Dad? You're going to get into yeah, so incredible in, amounts of trouble." In this episode, 
is the first time anyone else finds out about it, and it's Amros who discovers the, the okay. secret Palantir. Right, and he's got to okay. so he's got to be all about like you better give this to dad or like you're gonna like you know he's gonna nail you to something this is a big big do you can't hide this uh you know he would not approve um and it and so that can be all kind of rolled into and also but but i I mean so i I like the arkenstone thing because it shows um the arkenstone parallel because it shows him already like from a very early stage going against the will of feanor like not being in step with the will of feanor and so the whole I want to go back to mommy now doesn't come out of nowhere with Amrod, which mm-hmm. is good. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as Nick, what you were saying before about like, why now, why does he choose to go now? That I think makes a certain amount of psychological sense, right? I mean, he's, they've crossed the ocean. They've landed in middle earth. Like this is getting real now, right? It's about to start. It's about, it's time to go attack Morgoth now. Like he's, he's, he's crossed the line. I mean, they're on a new continent now and now he's, he is officially, left Valinor behind before they were still on the coast. Right. And maybe he can say to Amros that he, he he had been hoping that his dad wasn't going to go through with it. Right. He had been hoping that his father, like that he agrees, he Amrod agrees with Finarfin ultimately, you know, that they should go back and that this is, and that his dad is, is crazy to keep going. Um, but and now that they've come all the way over, like now it's like it's it's clear, like they've that this is, it's just like I said, it's gotten real now. Um, and he's like, so, okay, no, this is I I can't continue, I can't go through with this. I need to go back now that I've officially left. I now realize, like, I can't do this. I have to go home. Okay, so, so you, you would prefer to have Amrod and Amras on the same ship through the whole journey, and this just comes out yes over the course of a sea journey. Yes. With no, with no ship disasters. Because I backup. think that the 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 in a sense to me, like the whole the finding of the, the Palantir and big deal. The Palantir is a big deal, right? So if we're gonna make a big deal out of the Palantir, um, besides which, I, the other thing with the whole sea disaster is that it, like, I get the idea of wanting to show that the Fanorians are incompetent sailors. Um, but if we make Amrod in particular the incompetent sailors, not not the inco- yeah. like the spokesperson, like the poster child of in, of incompetence, right? Not only do we, um, not only do we undermine the idea of his successfully being able to sail home, but we also, um, I think, we kind of undermine. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, professional <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, he you know, he, he, he levels up over the course of the trip, so that yeah, he's better. No, I, no, I get what you're saying, and and have the the Palantir. I mean, the Palantir can't be destroyed by fire. No, but it can be. It can be lost. Um, yeah, I mean, I like guess if Amros, it's just in the Firth of Drangus, they might never, dive for it, right? So, well, I mean, unless Amros never says, "Hey, by the way." He had a Palantir. Maybe we should go check for it. Right. It's it's quite believable under those circumstances that he wouldn't. Yeah, yeah Amros is thinking of other things at the time than like, can we save Death Palantir? Right. Yeah. No. Exactly. <laughs> the, the fact that Amros isn't going to bring it up right away, and it's not going to be his like. So my brother is dead. But anyway, quick, let's dredge the let's you know dredge the bay for the Palantir. Uh, yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh. But what I'm thinking about now, though, is like what what would Feanor do? Maybe he doesn't learn. Well, because he never has he to never find out, out about it. Yeah, yeah, Feanor never knew, he and never has to certainly find not going to tell him. 
And so Amros will just leave it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So if, if Amrod has it with him on the ship when he burns to death, um, you know, even not telling his dad about the Palantir could almost be like a little like mini rebellion on Amros's part. Mm. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's hard because he has nobody to talk to about that. So, you know, we don't we can't really show him thinking that through. Um, Hakon is concerned. He He doesn't want to just leave it behind. He says, you know, maybe Kierden has to find it or something, uh, something later on. Um, I don't know. He can't because then he doesn't. uh, I think we could. He can't because, yeah, Kierden can't find it because if he finds Amroth's body, um, Amroth's body, it gives it kind of gives stuff away to him that we don't want to give away right off. Um, A and B. Then we have a Palantir in Middle Earth, which we don't want. Right, right. Um, it's going to be hard enough once the Dunedain have it. Yeah, I mean, there's the, there's the one that gets sunk in the Ice Bay of Oracle, and it's the same idea. Like, everyone knows it's there, but you can't recover it. It's gone. Right. So, like, even if, sure, Amros knows that this was here, it it's still lost. It's still gone. And no one's ever going to bring it up again. So, like, meh, it's gone. <laughs> it's gone. Yeah, it's just gone. Um, yeah. 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 It's just gone. And then, of course, like, then the world is broken and then it's it's fine. Really yeah. gone. Yeah. Super gone. But... Yeah. No, I, I have no problem. I And I'm not worried about that. I mean, Hakan, I, I can see that you're you're concerned about, like, the lost, like, the a loose end of the lost Palantir. Um I kind of like it, actually, the loose end. Um, you know, there's a lot of kind of tantalizing what-if stories about that, right? Which is which is cool. Um, People will write fan fiction about it. It'll be fine. Exactly. But besides also, the other thing is, I like introducing the Palantiri. You know, and, and if we have... If we can, I mean, we talked about this in season two, right? We want to we want to show the connection between Feanor and the Palantiri, um, to establish that the Palantiri are really big deal, so that when we do get Palantiri later on from the Numenorians, um, it feels like a really big deal. Right. Um, Especially if we have Amrod telling Amras, "No, I I can't tell Dad. If I tell Dad, he's going to take it." Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like it. I like that. So, so yeah. So, for those reasons, I would argue against oh. the foundering of the ship. Oh, you just remembered yeah. something. I just realized something. Huh? If Amros threatens to tell Dad about the stone, yeah, and and that has anything to do with Amros' decision to turn around and leave, Amros is partially at fault. Ah, or he's going to feel super guilty. He's going to feel super guilty. Ah, oh, yeah. If the last conversation between Amrod and Amros is an angry one where Amros is threatening to turn him in and Amrod is calling him a traitor and Amros is like, you're the one who's betraying the oath. And, you know, and yeah. And then he dies. Oh, man. Yeah. Boy. And you guys are wanting to make Amros live with that. Boy. Yep. We're going to torture him for the next 500 years because we're <laughs> like that. Exactly. Here I was wanting to give him a quick and merciful death, but you guys are like, no, no. 
<laughs> no, 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 no one gets off that easy. Okay. Um, All right. That's tough. Don't worry. We we will make Amra central to every possible episode so that uh, <laughs> more, more difficult. He's, he's going to become one of the great heroes of the Silmarillion film project. <laughs> <laughs> There's going to be a whole right. like Amros fan clubs out there and everything. Okay. Uh, uh, was there anything else in here? Anything else? Um, the confrontation between Mithros and Fanor was a little milder than I expected. Mm. Uh-huh. Uh, um. And maybe I just read over it too quickly. Or something. We might not have put much in there. To... We, didn't, we didn't put a lot of specificity in, in yeah. how that's going to go down. Like we didn't give it actual lines other than, than Feanor's craziness. Right, um, right. And it's true. So I think that's all it is. The text only says that, it's, that he stood aside. Um, so we d- it doesn't have to be necessarily a big confrontation. Um, right. But we want to make sure that we don't get him killed. Yeah, we don't want to get him killed. Um, but we, you guys did have Feanor cross with him afterwards. Like, you know, yes. Mithros was like big time in the doghouse after this scene. Um, so my, my um, inspiration for how we handled him in this was actually based on Jim Jones of Jonestown and his son, who did okay. survive the massacre of all the people there. And... Uh, which I realize is super depressing, and I'm sorry to bring up real life, but... Uh, <laughs> hey, it's a Silmarillion show. It's fine. Yeah, the the reality was that the eldest son of Jim Jones, who was part of the People's Temple cult, yeah. often would stand up and publicly argue with his father in meetings, and very few other people in the group ever did that because it was a cult of personality around right. the leader. Right. Um, so he got away with it. The, the son was... A teenage, he was like an 18-year-old boy at the time. So he, just angry young man, argued against his dad publicly. but And he considered himself to be opposing his father. Realistically, he wasn't making any difference in what actually happened. But he perceived himself as being the voice of reason or someone who could control where things went. So Maidros here thinks he's standing up to his dad and thinks he's changing something. And in reality, everything's going to happen exactly the way Feanor set it up. Yeah. So that that was it was more of an ineffective attempt at speaking out rather right. than an act of rebellion. Right. Right. Yeah, I definitely agree we don't want to elevate it to rebellion, something that Fanor would feel he has to actively punish essentially. Mm-hmm. Um but to 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 show that like a a visible schism, not just one internal within Mithros, but a visible to others schism opening between Mithros and, and Fanor seems appropriate here, especially then with Amroth's becoming also, you know, and, and the whole Amrod's death issue. Um, one of the things that I really like most about killing Amrod here is that um, is the way in which it, I think, very effectively catapults the Feanorians into chaos, essentially, you know, and sort of shows <laughs> the rocky position that they're in, you know, you have Amros outright, you know, calling out his father. You have, um, you know, a couple of the brothers grabbing him to restrain him. Mm-hmm. 
you have Mithros coming in into in, in to aid him, you know, to stop them. So there's like all these moving parts now, right? Where there used to be almost this cohesive, yes. Um, yeah, no, I agree. There's great. There's a uh, a lot of really good, productive, uh, sort of not just development of individual characters, but you know, development of group dynamics here, so that the Feanorians are are very distinctly not simply a a kind of extension of Feanor himself, right? Uh, you know, this kind of united front. Um, by the way, a small point. But an important dramatic moment. Uh, your question about uh, the possibility of using some kind of accelerant in burning the ships. I agree that if you just shoot flaming arrows onto ships, they're going to take a long time to start burning. Um, which, again, in the context of Amrod getting burned alive inside, is a little bit... Not to mention the fact that it's not very dramatic to be, like, shooting fire and then standing there being like, wait for it, hang on, 15, 20 minutes, they'll start burning like crazy. You just wait and see, right? Like that. What's that pitch takes? Yep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Any second now, the sail will go up and you'll really see something, right? I agree that that would be anticlimactic. My thought, though, is that I don't think we need to get over-mechanical about that. Um, in fact, the way the, the way that I would kind of picture the scene is we show the, we show the arrows arcing out, and we don't need to show them, like, whomping into flame like they're coated in gasoline, necessarily, right? I mean, we can show the flames kind of beginning, but once the flames start, um, you know, the, 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 you know, the arrows can, you know, catch in some of the sails and things, which would go up relatively quickly um, uh, to start off, but, uh, but I'm just kind of imagining the, the, the camera shot showing Feanor with the ships in the background. Um, I love the Ted Naismith burning of the, uh, of the ships mm. image. It's one of my favorites of all of Ted Naismith's paintings. Um, and uh, that, and he has uh, Feanor standing there with his arms up, holding his staff up in the air, almost like Moses, but like backwards. Uh, anyway, I, I love the, the shot of Feanor there with his arms up as the, uh, and so that I was kind of picturing that essentially imagining Feanor, you know, standing there as the ships are, are, have been lit, you know, standing there with his hands up saying, burn, burn. And then the flames leaping with even like the implication that his own will is feeding the flames, that there is something that mm. there is like elf magic that is happening here, that Feanor, the spirit of fire is himself inspiring the flames that are burning the ships. Um, I like that in a couple ways. First of all, like I don't want to lose the fact that like, these are, the great high elves of old we're talking about here. They can do stuff, you know, like there's, uh, okay. you know, and even if we're not showing elf magic, you know, uh, uh, of the kind that Gandalf used to show, um, we can, st- we don't have to back away from the fact that they have power, like they can make stuff happen. Um, and with Feanor, what makes more sense, right, than inspiring flame? He's the spirit of fire. He's the spirit of fire, right? Um, not to mention the fact that I also like that linking it to his own personal will and power also just seems to fit thematically. Like it makes the burning of the ships a more personal act. It's like Feanor personally has burned the ships, right, through his own will. It's not just that he was the one who made the call, right? Um, it's like he personally is burning down the ships, and that seems to me to really fit that moment. 
So yeah, so the accelerant is the will of Feanor. That's uh, yeah. <laughs> Eric Heb in the Twitch chat says he sang of flames of fire red and tongues of flame there blazed. Exactly. Yep. That's it. Yep. Yep. Uh, okay. I would not even be opposed to have him singing, but I don't even think he has to sing. I think he could just be, you know, calling out to the flames and have the flames respond. Yeah. Uh. Okay, um, and I love the ending. Celeborn uh, Kel- uh, and Kierden, you know, and Kierden's statement that uh, you know only the enemy would would do such a thing. You know, uh, such evil could only be done, you know, by the enemy. I love that as the end of the episode. That's really really cool. Um, and um, oh. more conversation there's for later. Yeah, later times. Yeah. Yeah, no, especially since they they don't actually do all that much, so having them comment yeah. on things sparingly is good. It's good. Yeah. Um, yeah, great. And I like the debates. Um, uh, I thought that the 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 balance of the debates as you guys were were doing, like among the Fingolfin's crowd, right, and Turgon's vision. I thought that worked really well. Um, I was. Uh, I was I was I was happy with the debates over there and the decision to I mean of course I know the main decision to go is going to be in the next episode but um but I liked it in general I thought that worked well um good yeah any other last thoughts or questions on episode eight nope other than the fact that we departed from the four X structure for it uh, oh wait other than the, other than the fact that you what. We departed from the four act structure for this one. It was impossible to yeah. make it. To it was completely untenable when we were trying to work it out. Yeah. Um, so there's a long, a long second act to get us through the long sea journey. Right. And then, uh, and then everything else breaks down in the third act. Yeah. Yeah. I see. Right. Okay. Not that it's a little, little bit of drama nerdery there, but you know. Yeah. And oh, by the way, I, I really like this point in the frame about like uh, how important it is that Estelle not reveal his mother's name. <laughs> yeah, that's important. That's important. Um, oh, yeah. Sorry. Okay, one more question. Why does Estelle ditch Hamilcar? He's sick of him. He's sick um, of well, essentially, that's that's how it boils down. It boils out. Like he, he like. Hamilcar is arguing with him. He's he's giving him a hard time every second. Like it's just not worth it to have this guy with him. So the the as I'm understanding the structural parallel, right? The structural parallel is that Aragorn Estelle is parallel to Feanor, right? So yeah, he's essentially betraying him and leaving him behind. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, I was wanting to think of ways we could make that parallel stronger. Of course, that's been it's been yeah. it's been my central concept all the way through. That um, you know, I wanted to have young Aragorn be like sort of learning the lessons of Feanor here to not follow in Feanor's footsteps um, as a kind of a a very advanced preamble to you know Aragorn not taking the ring and Aragorn, you know, dealing with power correctly and acting appropriately someday in the return of the King. Right. Um, so, uh, yeah. So anyway, that, that seems like an, a really appropriate thing. 
So let's think about how we can strengthen this a little bit. What does this mean about... So I want to think about... I think that it could be strengthened both by clarifying Estelle's motivations and viewpoint a little bit more and maybe altering the circumstances. The main thing I had with him just leaving it behind is that... um, Okay, two... um, uh, Two problems that I had with that... One is that I was having a hard time getting... It didn't seem like a betrayal exactly, right? Um, And so the parallel wasn't... I mean, it's rash. And so the rashness of it, I'm going to go on alone, could certainly be kind of Fanor-like. But the parallels between his decision and Fanor's decision are not really obvious, apart from the fact that he's going off on his own, right? But... um, but I would want to. I would want to solidify that parallel a little bit. But and and the circumstances. If if it's gonna be a parallel to what Fanor does to Fingolfin, it needs to be a little bit more of a betrayal. Marielle is saying that um, um, if he abandons his companion while they sleep, um, presumably she says, "Well, he was supposed to be keeping watch." It might look either uh, too childish or too wicked. My concern is, it's not wicked enough. Um, I don't think it, it takes all. It takes all the right. Like I'm good. Could there be a circumstance? I mean, for it to be parallel, it would have to be something like, you know, we have to work cooperatively to cross a river or something, and you go over first, and then you help me over, and then he goes over first and doesn't help him and leaves him behind. Like that oh, would be like a, a kind of, like a rope swing. Yeah, like thing. A, like exactly. Like a I'm not going to throw the rope back to you. I'm just going to go mm. off and leave you there kind of situation. Like that would be more parallel. Um without being too bad. I mean, we obviously we don't want Estelle to be such a bad egg that he's going to like leave Hamilcar to die, right? Um his purpose would just be to leave oh. him behind. Um uh to be, you know, to quote Feanor, right? Be useless baggage on the way. That would be how he would view Hamilcar. And he has rivalry with him, right? So he's trying to show him up. Um so he wants to he wants to take care of things himself. He wants to accomplish this deed on his own and not have and not share the glory with Hamilcar. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, it doesn't have to be necessarily so hokey as like the rope switch situation that I'm describing. But if it were something like that, where it's actually like he's turning his back on Hamilcar and leaving him behind in a way that Hamilcar, like Fingolfin, would feel to be a betrayal. Um, I mean. If they come to a river and they find, of course, the first thing that occurs to me is if they come to a river and they find like a coracle there, and it can only fit one of them, and Estelle goes across and, and then doesn't send and it back, and then doesn't send the boat back, yeah, saying, that would be super parallel. <laughs> but then, which one has the cabbage? Because usually you have a cabbage and a wolf. <laughs> we already right. have the wolves, so now we need a cabbage. We need a cabbage. <laughs> That's right. We gotta work a cabbage I've into this. Never heard it that way. I've always heard it like grain, chicken, and Fox, but that's fine too. <laughs> right. oh, well, you can also do it, yeah, chicken and cabbage, or I yeah, know, yeah, but. yeah, no, I, exactly. So I, I mean, and, and again, it does. Like, I, I'm not saying we have to push the peril, like exactly as you say, Nick. It doesn't have to be quite so on the nose as a as a boat, right? Um, but some, some kind, of, if they could be in some kind of like obstacle that they have to. Uh, Hakan is remembering the scene in the Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, where uh, Inigo gets oh, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. But again, not like I'm abandoning you to die. Like, again, it's, 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 it can't be that bad, obviously. It's just a... Yeah, you can't, if they come you can't to go like, on from here. You, you, you right. will like. I, I am leaving you in a place where I know you are now going to have to turn back and go back to the camp and achieve no glory. And I will go on if on my own. A, if there's like a short-ish cliff face, and Hamilcar lifts him up to get up to the top, and Estelle's supposed to turn around and and give him a hand up, yeah, and he doesn't. Something like that could also work. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. very tangled. It's a little tangled, yeah, um, and obviously it takes more time to establish. But I... no, I meant like the 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 movie Tangled. Oh, it's more like but... Tangled. Okay, right. I see. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, uh, which I have to confess, I haven't seen. Uh, it's on my list okay. of Disney movies that I have to catch up on. Uh, uh, a consequence of a, a consequence of having only boys. I was just about to say. I just yeah. saw Frozen for the first time like six months ago. Uh-huh. So I mean, like that's yeah, I, I, I imagine boys. that's in my so, future. I imagine times. it is. Having I'm seen it in the last now. six months, I, I imagine it's in your future too. Uh, but anyway, um, so uh, uh, yeah. So anyway, yeah. So something like this. Because here's the other thing. There's the other reason that the other problem I had with the situation of him just leaving him when he's asleep. Why does Hamilcar go home? He'd follow him, surely, right? If he just wakes up and Estelle's gone, he wouldn't just be like, "Oh, I'm going to go back to the camp now," right? I mean, he would be even. He would be like doubly motivated to catch up to Estelle uh, and show him up. I think that it might be kind of a. Like, fine, I'll leave you to die in the woods by yourself. Like, because Hamilcar doesn't think that that Estelle is capable. Right. Well, I mean, I could see that, but it just, it's, if Hamilcar is the person I take him for, his desire would be to show up Estelle, not simply to leave him to die. I mean, I, I, could, yeah. I could imagine him being okay, like shedding no tears over Estelle if he died, but I would think he would, he would be double motivated to go on rather than to turn back. I feel like we have a kind of lack of conflict because people are just not with each other anymore. So we probably need to put something in to yeah. show the the moment yeah. of fine, we'll go our separate ways. Well, that's, a little bit that's, more. Kind of, that's kind of one of the reasons why I was, it, why the taking of all the food occurred to me because then Hamilcar legitimately like he could continue he could hunt for himself maybe but he's not going to be very effective right. as a wolf hunter if, um, though i'm not sure that this is a sufficiently long-term issue for lack of food to determine it again if hamilcar's the strapping brave kind of boneheaded young lad i take him for I don't even think lack of food is going to stop him. You know, he would be more likely to be like, I will, you know, persevere fasting and find food in the wilderness. Yeah. Yeah, So, um, so I can't, but again, if there were some physical obstacle that couldn't, Mm -hmm. that, that he couldn't cross such that he was actually forced to, or even we could even have Hamilcar overtaken soon out. So like he's trapped on the near side of whatever obstacle it is that Estelle has crossed with his help and that Estelle has not offered his help to cross. And, uh, and soon after that he is overtaken by Eladon Elro here in Halberon. Maybe. Mm. Right. Okay. Um, so Hamilcar doesn't go back. Hamilcar doesn't he's, go back. Yeah, he's caught up. 
they find him. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. okay. Um, that simplifies that a little bit. Um, and also explains why they find Hamilcar and not Estelle. So then they could win there. So it doesn't have to be back in the camp. They could then have the conversations that they later have with him about the, yeah. about that thing. Yeah. Okay. Apparently we will discuss another time. Yes, we shall. <laughs> yes, we shall. I was, for the last 10 minutes, I've been looking at the clock and, and I was debating whether or not to bring this up about the frame at all. And then I'm like, we totally don't have time to do another episode anyway. So I'm just going to talk about the frame. That's good. It's good. Um, Cause I, I mean, I, I, I really love the reveal to Hamilcar about who Estelle is and his decision to go on. And I mean, I think that that's, that's all really, really good. Not to mention the fact that I love, um, I loved both ends of the frame for episode nine. Now we're just going to like be looking ahead at the frame of episode nine. Um, but since we're on the subject, I'll just say it. Um, I love both the fact, both Hamilcar's feeling upset about the fact that his own dad is like obviously 10 times more worried about Estelle being lost than him being lost and him feeling like, okay, no, I see. I really am chopped liver apparently. Right. You know, that you care more about this, this elf lad, you know, than you care about me. Um, and then having him learn and come to understand why his dad cares so much and why Estelle matters and have him have his change of heart. I, I, so both ends of that, you know, the way in which it both ex- uh, exacerbates Hamilcar's, um, uh, uh, ill will towards Estelle, um, but then having the reveal, I I really like it. So yeah, that came out of the original frame discussion. So that's that's not us. That uh, but yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, yeah, cool, good, <laughs> good. All right. Um, excellent. Okay, so no problem. <laughs> Two was just as good as four today, I think. Um, <laughs> but fortunately, we're set up for being able to finish the last five next time. So that'll be good. Yeah. So if we get started on time and stick on topic, we'll be just fine. (laughs) You know, (laughs) both of those Uh things uh, happen all the time. So, okay. So, don't forget to uh, visit the casting Subforum, uh, and so that's in season three, right? So you go to the film film, yeah. uh, for, then to season three, and then the casting folder, right? Well, it's on this on the film film page. It's casting, and okay. then season oh, three then season nominations. Three, okay, season three nominations. Right, that's a separate subforum that we just opened today. Okay. But yes, it's open, ready for business. Already, already started. Excellent, great. Uh, so, uh, uh, so we encourage people to to go go nominate for uh, just real quick who are some of the some of the big names up there for uh, not actors names character names that are up there for uh, the, the 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 most exciting characters we need to cast this season um, well all the princes of the Noldor okay uh, are up so that's it the Beleriand storyline we have the elves of Doriath such as Daron Luthien mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> Uh, also, the dwarves that we've introduced in this season. Ah. So we have about five five characters to cast. Yeah. Um, Tillian, the last of the Valinar characters, who just randomly wasn't cast before. <laughs> right, because he had no role prior to the moon. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. by the way, I, I love that little moment in Valinor where 
Orome is like, hey, Tillian, I got a job for you. Right? <laughs> like that, like, hi, I need to introduce your character prior to the creation of the moon. I, I loved that. <laughs> I, I thought, yeah. Um, oh, by the way, um, I have found a spot in episode um, in episode eight of season one. There's a spot where we have Arian in Lorien, and yes. it makes total sense for there to be kind of a Houses of Healing yeah. uh, kind of uh, thing going on there with Tillian and her. Uh, two scenes ought to do it, and I think that will... So that would be good Tillian enough. Back with... into season one, right? Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And then so and so, like, Arian's talking to somebody, and they're like, "Who's that guy behind you?" And she's like, "Oh, he follows me everywhere." Right? Yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Okay. Very good. Okay. So yeah, Luthien. Luthien is clearly the biggest casting decision, right, mm-hmm. of this round. Yeah, because I mean, Baldog is also on the list, but <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh boy. Yeah. Just imagine, you know, all the 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 actresses' agents wanting to try out for the Luthien part, right? All but you have to be already... is the most beautiful woman of all time. That's it. And a great dancer. But and a great um... dancer. Yeah. We we have already cast the parents of most of these characters, including right. Luthien. So we have a Thingol and a Melian. Yes. So that can help people kind of narrow down which families look like they have any resemblance. So what you need to do is find one of those face generators and put in <laughs> pictures of Paul Bettany and Rachel Weiss and see what comes out, and that's totally Luthien. There you go. <laughs> there you go. And then and then just find an actress who looks just like that. It's easy. Exactly. Oh, and she has to also look just like Edith Tolkien. Right. That's, yes. Yes. Yeah. You know, as long yeah, as long as, as long as all those things happen, we're fine. <laughs> yeah. Right. Hawkeye is saying we should just CGI Luthien, basically. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Rather than make a judgment call on which person is the most beautiful person of all yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, tricky. It's, it's going to be a tough one. Anyway, okay. So nominations open. Don't forget about that. And we will see everybody again in two weeks. What's the date of that? Is that the... June 1st. June 1st. Indeed. Yes, it is. Wow, that's right. Because today's the 18th. Wow, isn't it? It is. There it is. Okay. Yeah, it'd be helpful if I knew what you're doing. We may not get the season done by Mythmood. Nah, <laughs> no, no, I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, but we'll be close. We'll be. We'll, we'll definitely there's, be in the home. There's stretch. no chance. Yeah, there's no chance. <laughs> you, we may have to just do some. We may just have to do some like marathon late night podcast sessions to wrap it up at Mythmoot. Yeah. Oh no. <laughs> uh, yeah. The the casting won't happen until after Mythmoot, no matter what. Um, right. Right. Yeah. Certainly. Certainly. All right. Well, thank you, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another fun episode today. Uh, uh, I really enjoyed getting into uh, all the things that we talked about today. Glad we solved the Palantir issue. That was fun. Uh, anyway, so thanks again to uh, Nick and Marie and all of our uh, our, our our screen outlining uh, team. You guys have done such a great job of fleshing out uh, these crazy ideas that we throw around in the episodes as we go through. Uh, and obviously I have way too much fun revisiting these things uh, after several months. So uh, anyway, but I will say as always, thanks for listening and Godspeed. <laughs>